The place. Oneofus.net. The date. June 28th. The time. All of it. Wait, what? That's right, on June 28th, starting at 12 noon, we'll be broadcasting for 12 hours. It's our first ever oneofus.net Comic-Con Potathon fundraiser! 12 hours? We didn't agree to... There will be special guests, prizes, and several of your favorite site personalities pushed to the edges of their sanity when geek inebriation meets sleep deprivation. Funds received will go towards a One of Us meetup during Comic-Con as well as an end-of-summer bash in celebration of our one-year anniversary. I'm glad you've come around. Well, what the hell else am I going to do all day? That's the spirit. Join us, won't you? Well, Richard, it's time for another Digital Noise. Hey, I love today. Ooh, where's Monkey? Oh, you know what? That's a good point. Maybe we should find him because he has been really noisy. I love that cat, but yeah, well, there are a few days where he's been kind of attacking anything that's been left around. But he's such a cutie. But oh, there he is. Hey, Monkey. 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 Oh, my God. Ah, ah, my oh, my beautiful Richard, Richard, ah, Richard, are you okay? Ah, monkey, get off him. Ah, what are you doing? Oh, my God. Are you all right, man? Call the doctor. I have catitude problems. What about a beer? Oh, that'll do. Welcome to this week's episode of Digital Noise. Hey, Op. Uh, it's Richard and I again, as I'm sure you can tell already. Brian will be coming back at some point, I promise. But Richard will also be staying, so there hey! you go. <laughs> it's like a three-foot. Oh, that sounds wrong. Oh, wait, huh? Oh. Why? I know I should have started doing this podcast with two girls. Um, we've got a oh, lot. One podcast, two girls. <laughs> right? What? <laughs> we've got a lot. You know, that's now an old joke. Like, there's kids out there going... I don't get I don't get the two girls one cup thing. Okay. I, the fact that internet memes are like the internet, which is still I remember when I first really had full access to the proper World Wide Web, feels like it was just a few years ago. But no, if you go up to your average kid, you know who's now not even average kid, your twenty year old, and make a joke about all your base are belong <laughs> to us, they're not going to know what you're telling <laughs> like, you. Move about. along, Grandpa. Move <laughs> along. <laughs> no, you're like, oh, that's your granddad's internet. <laughs> AOL coasters. They don't even know what a coaster is these days. Kids today, I tell you. I swear. And uh, they soon they won't even know what Blu-rays are, sadly enough. They'll be like, hard media? What's the point of that? Or maybe they won't. I don't know. Hopefully they won't, because I like having my own copies of hard media. Yeah, you turn little heathens. Buy a DVD once in a while. Seriously. It's yeah. nice to have. It's your movie library. Yep. You know, I love walking into my house and just seeing the walls just covered with titles that I could choose to watch at any time, but I probably won't because I got a stack of new stuff to watch <laughs> because I got to review it for you, heathens. <laughs> it never ends. And this week is never ending because we've got a lot of titles. But first, let me just say real quick, thank you for listening to Digital Noise and being on oneofus.net. If, uh, if you haven't yet, you should look into being a subscriber. There's uh, four different levels of it, and the basic level is really inexpensive uh, subscription per month. And you get all sorts of bonuses for that, from having access to more commentaries after the initial 48-hour period that they go up on the site, private commentaries. Uh, there's a brand new show that we haven't decided if it's called The Rantoning or The Yammering that's subscriber only. Uh, Rantinating the countryside, yammering the village. 
Yeah, sure. Why not? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> there's bloopers. There's going to be a lot more, like actual hard extras. It'll be mailed to you. Uh, you get to help pick the commentaries, all sorts of stuff. It's very much worth your time. Uh, also, if you are thinking about buying one of the titles that we talk about this week, please go to the page itself where you'll see pictures of all these titles. And if you click on one of those pictures of the title in particular, it'll take you to the Amazon link for that. If you buy that title through that link, we indeed do get a small kickback from Amazon for that. But in fact, if you buy anything starting from one of our Amazon links on the site, then we get a kickback from whatever it is, even if it isn't the item you initially clicked on. So good to know. Yep. Uh, anyway, so that's it for uh, like making sure we've got all our ducks in a row there. It is time to open up that great big digital mailbox in the sky Ooh. that we like to call the letterbox. You've got mail. Okay, the letterbox. And our first question this week comes from Alec Miracle, who says, this year, this year is Lost's 10th anniversary. Are you doing anything to celebrate it? Well, you know me, I was a huge Lost fan. I, I watched most of the episodes I've watched at least twice. And I admit as well as anybody that I thought that the ending, the last season in general, was a bit of a miscalculation. Uh, it Half of it worked really well and half of it didn't really work at all. But that being said, I can't condemn the entire thing based on the fact that I didn't completely love the, the way the way they chose to go out because along the way it was one of the most fun shows I thought I had ever watched and I will probably go back and watch it again but that being said as I mentioned previously I don't have a lot of time for rewatching shit these <laughs> days so I suspect outside of being invited to someone's lost 10th anniversary party that features lots of lost themed events and strippers or something then probably not doing anything now richard what am I doing for it? Nothing. What? I hated that show. Oh, I hated it from the first episode. It the deuce, me, you say? It drove me insane. When the when the polar bear turns up, I was literally like, I'm out. I'm out. I can tell this is going to be pretentious and boring and up its own ass and just going to go, ooh, we're dead mysterious. And I'm like, I love the X-Files, so I can handle a show that goes, ooh, we're dead mysterious. This was like, we're trying so hard. We're trying so, so hard. And, you know, I just feel also that there's a direct genealogical link uh, from the people who worked on Lost to Prometheus. Uh, and therefore, I am just, it's unforgivable. It starts a bad phase. If I had seen Prometheus first, I probably been, would have been more reluctant to watch that. <laughs> you probably would have burnt your television. <laughs> no, I, I, no, no, it never worked for me. I, I tried watching it. I really did. And I'm just like, oh, I, this is just, I can tell. I can tell right now you're going to do something really appalling at the end. That's just going to annoy me. And they did. And they did something pissed off their loyal fan base. And that's like, well done. You wasted people walking away like, I wasted seven years of my life. You fucking. See, but you say that. And then that was right after saying you're a big fan of the X-Files, which completely ruined. I mean, like Lost was like the best ending of all time compared to the X-Files, which was arguably next to Dexter, one of the worst endings of any show ever. I mean, it, it did peter out. I will give you that. Oh, yeah, but then like, I like the fact that they kind of went, well, what's going to happen is the world is going to end at some point in the future. Here's the date. What do we do? How do we walk away? Uh, yeah, I like that. I actually, uh, mm. actually how, you know, I know that doesn't work for a lot of people, but I, it, that for me was part of the charm of the show was you've got two people who go, okay, yeah, this is all real. 
And they can do nothing about it because everything was set in motion 6,000 years before man put brick on brick. That wasn't even the aspect of it specifically that made it bad. It was the whole, oh, by the way, they've been together the whole time. Didn't you notice? Like that, which was like, seriously, Mm -hmm. what a fucking cop out. And the three or four seasons before that that really sucked. Oh, oh, now, now. I'm just saying. That's a conversation for another another day. They really sucked. Uh I mean, they sucked at the time new. I've gone back and watched them since and go, okay, these are okay for a show that would not have been the X-Files, but this was supposed to be the X-Files, so I'm I'm giving you that look, aren't I? I can tell. (laughs) I I can feel it. I'm like... All right, well, let's move on to another question before Richard gets really upset. (laughs) Uh, And uh, from... uh, hmm. What does this name say? I can't read it because it's really small because I forgot to increase the uh, types. Meryl. Uh, uh, Manil. Arachine, uh, Arachi, uh, sorry, we, this is just not good. This is a bad start to the day. Uh, yeah, I'll make it even bigger. There you Manil, go. Manil Aharachi, uh, uh, gay. I guess. I think. I'm sorry, Manil. Really sorry. I apologize for being so incredibly Caucasian. This is not our finest moment. (laughs) That I have no idea how to pronounce your last name. I'm so sorry. That is my bad. But your question is, do you think it's fair to judge a long-form series episodically if even the bad stuff adds to the whole narrative? I.e., it's unfair to judge a book on one bad chapter if it gets better by the end. Why is it fair to do the the same TV? Oh, look, he actually has how to pronounce his name there yeah. at the end so we really we are really pathetic. are the world's worst people uh, sorry arachi gay there you <laughs> sorry, go sorry manil sorry we really we suck just so bad it's <laughs> speaking of lost uh... <laughs> well you know i mean once again like that's one of those like i think that like the whole series was excellent and it had weak points in it. And yeah. I thought the end was one of the weak points, but it wasn't so weak as to ruin. It never ruined the show for me. Yeah. I was like, okay, they already, in fact, by the time they got to the end, they had the season before that wrapped up a lot of my favorite storylines already. So it was like, okay, yeah, this is not how I would have ended it, but at least you already took care of all my favorite questions. I, I, I think there's... You you have to talk about the ebb and the flow of a series when you're reviewing the whole thing. Oh, yeah. But it is also fair to talk about individual episodes. There are individual episodes that suck. Um, or even, like, uh, individual seasons that just are definitely not as good as other seasons yep. in it. And it's partially, to some degree, it's with shows that can be like, all right, if you can recover from that, from a particularly bad season, then I'm like, I'm that much more proud of you. I yeah. think, for me, Supernatural is one of those shows that had, like, a really, really awful seven, I think it was seventh season and not so good sixth season. And we were like, well, that's it. Yeah. And then it pulled out of its nosedive and became one of my favorite shows on TV again. And I, you know, you will have to go a long way to find a bigger advocate for Deep Space Nine than me. I love that show beyond measure. There is stuff in season one that is worth talking about because it's so bad. <laughs> and also with, with, with Star Trek Next Generation. When the space Irish tinkers turn up, oh that's God. just a bad episode. And it's okay to say, this was a bad episode in a great, in a great show. Well, the, the, the first two seasons of Star Trek Next Generation, they were still trying to capture the spirit of the original show. And more often than not, that bit them in the ass yeah. when they were trying to do that. Some of the worst episodes are the ones where clearly they were following that manual. I, says, I think some of the scripts were even that original Star Trek Phase Two scripts that were just repurposed. Yeah. Uh, once it became its own thing, and this is true of Deep Space Nine as well, which was copying Next Generation's formula and failing at it because it's a completely different type of show. But once they realized, hey, we can do our own thing. We've got our own energy, that we're our own dynamic, it be- they became 
good and proper shows in their own right. And also, it's completely fair to talk about bad episodes in in isolation, yeah. because otherwise that means you can't talk about good episodes. So if you have an episode which just blows it out of the water, it's completely reasonable to talk about, about that. So then again, it's fair to talk about individual episodes. But it's also fair to talk about the complete arc. But yeah, the, I think the problem we've got at the moment is that there's this weird obsession with talking about too many individual episodes, and you go out there, and we've talked about this in the past, the number of, of websites that just do recaps. And I'm like, are you really adding something? Do we really need 10,000 Mad Men recaps on, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, every week? Or does everybody have to get up and go, oh, Game of Thrones is over. How quickly can I get my recap up? Yeah. It's like, is that, I don't know, what are you adding? What are you adding to the, the, the general quality of, of the viewing experience for audiences? I'm going to go with nothing. People, people want to be able to relive it while they're wasting time at work. Yeah. You know, I think it's what it comes down to it. It's like, oh, I really love that episode. Now I want to think, watch somebody talk about, re-say re everything, single thing that happened in that episode, add a few thoughts to it. I mean, for me, generally speaking, the most I need is the occasional, you know, BuzzFeed post about Game of Thrones. We bet you never noticed this. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, that took 20 seconds. I'm good. <laughs> and usually I hadn't noticed. Although that Back to the Future thing, seriously, none of you noticed that Twin Pines Malls changed to, what was it, Single Pine Mall or whatever? Yeah. Like, just Pine yeah. Mall. It's like, you never noticed that, really? Like the gag. It's like, who didn't notice that when that aired originally? Morons. Yeah, I don't know. Just to be harsh, morons. <laughs> Suddenly, Richard gained a whole new slew of enemies. <laughs> I never noticed that. Oh. I'm not a moron. <laughs> Shaky fist. Anyway, well, thank you guys for your questions. I hope that more or less answered them. Um, and we're going to close the letterbox and get on to the reviews. <laughs> and we are going to start right out with a interesting little horror film that came out from a chiller oh my god when the moment the chiller logo went up i went oh, oh fuck <laughs> because these they i'm sorry i mean i know the sci-fi channel started off rough too and eventually put out some good stuff but the chiller network is still you know in its birth pangs and you know everything the with their label longest labor for a uh a, a, a network though this is taking forever but oh, yeah. start. and plus they're getting they're going to get big chunks now that fearnet's been bought out they're going to get some chunks of their programming which is probably really good for their dna probably but that being said fearnet has still been struggling to get unique and good programming themselves. yeah that's they, they, they've been a mixed bag shall we say yeah uh but i was, uh, was kind of surprised by the monkey's paw despite being based on you know, one of the, a very old horror story idea, uh, basically wish on a monkey's paw, uh, and you'll get your wishes, but terrible versions of your wishes. Uh, we've all, at least presumably you, if you follow horror, you are somewhat familiar with this concept. Or if you, or if you saw Treehouse of, of Horror 2 on the Indeed, Simpsons. Which actually had the monkey, like, fingers come down, so yeah. didn't you during this whole thing always just stare just at that paw? I the paw to it. <laughs> As the fingers move, I was like, why didn't you move the finger? Probably because it's on the Chiller Network and they're cheap. But, uh, and plus they spent all their money on their cast, which is specifically the reason why this is as good as it is, because Stephen Lang plays a good old boy, except not really all that good, uh, named Tony Cobb here, who is friends with the lead who character. Who called Ty Cobb, because it was the last time a man called Cobb was this much of an asshole. Right? Yeah. Listen, he's an asshole when he's, like, just regular guy. Uh, as when this film starts out, he's just, a you know, one of the guys who works at the local industrial plant. And... 
you know, he, he's one of those people like, okay, he could be fun to party with for a little while, but sooner or later, he's going to turn things ugly, start a fight with somebody, harass a girl, something like that. Kind of the older, pathetic guy. And part of the reason is because his wife left him and he had a young, hot wife. You're like, how exactly? Yeah. Uh, and he can't, he's not even allowed to see his son. So he's all bitter. He's kind of passing that on to his young friend who gets passed on himself, this monkey's paw. Which, you know, they don't really believe in. So he immediately is like, I wish I had that sweet car outside. Right. Oh, it's got the keys in the ignition. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, well, fuck it. Let's take it. Let's We've been steal drinking. a car. Which, you know, leads to bad stuff, which leads to, in fact, a car accident, which leads to his friend, played by Stephen Lang, getting killed. So second wish, I wish my friend wasn't dead. Okay, anybody who's ever seen any sort of supernatural thing at all that involves wishes know you never ever wish to bring someone back from the dead. It, Pet cemetery. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It never works out well. And uh, Stephen Lang's character comes back without a soul and turns into the reason, the only real reason to watch The Monkey's Paw because he is so fucking frightening in this. Yes. He's phenomenal. Well, no, I mean, he's phenomenal in it. You know, they make Louisiana look you know, pretty good and creepy. It's shot in New Orleans, which always adds that kind of weight of like, Bad voodoo and gree-gree around it. <clears throat> you have uh, cordon, uh, 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 not cor- uh, cordon blue, uh, Corbin blue, <laughs> mm, Gordon which is a blue. really <laughs> odd name choice by the Blue family, um, <laughs> as the absolutely impenetrable friend Catfish. Yeah, who just... has one of the thickest Louisiana accents you've ever heard in your life. The best reason to watch this on Blu-ray is because you can get full subtitles, so you can understand what you're, you're like, saying. Well, I don't know what you're saying. I would have all. no idea otherwise. It's, it's deep. And uh, uh, Charles S. Dutton turns up inexplicably, because he's obviously slumming it these days, uh, as the police detective. It's like, yeah. And I was like, is that Charles Dutton? Yeah, I was like, like what? It wow, they got Charles S. Dutton in? He's barely in it. Yeah, still. He, he goes through, but, you know, this... Stephen Lang just absolutely steals this show. He, he, he totally so does. He's convincing as sort of a dumb redneck originally, where you're like, okay, he's largely harmless if you don't let him get involved in your life, but just a simple, simple guy. And then makes that, turns that sort of like dully eyed, you know, like, because <laughs> he's a dullard. He really yeah. is. He like, just looks like uh, he's not all there. And then he translates that immediately turns into the soulless monster. That's just terrifying. Just to look at, I mean, such a great performance from Lang in this film that you're like, you do know you're in a chiller film, right? Steve? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you don't, you don't want to let it all out at once. I'm just saying, save some for whatever real project you get offered later. Um, you know, this is, you know, it's chiller. It's, you know, a very by-the-numbers horror in most ways. Sure. Like, you'll see every, every scare coming ten miles away. But there are a couple of nice moments that actually really worked for me. There's a really good death by drill press that I really hugely enjoyed as a splatter fan. Yeah, although um, I would have enjoyed if they had actually had the splatter. Yeah. You know. Uh, but this, where, you know, there's this great bit where he's... he Yeah, not to, not to give too much away, but... Um, Stephen Lang's character is dragging a, um, a, a a trash can for various reasons with somebody stuck inside it uh, through the streets during Mardi Gras. And it's actually a good, effective, creepy little scene because he's wearing this skull mask. And you're like, this actually kind of works. Script by uh, Mason Blair. 
who, from uh, did, the phenomenal Blue Room. Yeah, which, which most you guys seen, do. Just, most of you guys haven't seen yet. I believe it's. I, I, it didn't come out on Blu-ray already, did it? No, it's not out yet. Okay, it, it's it's on VOD and it had but limited theatrical and and I got to see it. I got to pl- see it play in the theater and it's really good. Yeah, this is not. This feels like a. Uh, Maybe a very early script by him or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's not a great script, but the actors do a lot with it. Yeah. So um, it's a tight enough adaptation of a, a classic short story. I mean, yeah. you know, it gets the you know, there's there's nothing unpredictable about it. But then again, the monkey's paw is it's such a, a touchstone of of horror fiction that you kind of, you do it and you go, well, okay, well, it's the monkey's paw story. Well, yeah, it's a great classic story and it does it, you know, solidly. I'll say that. I'll say solidly. You know, it's funny because, like, as much as I thought this was, you know, at best, a, a workmanlike adaptation that is elevated by the strength of the some of the acting in it, I couldn't sleep afterwards because I just had this great idea for a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, damn it, I should write this down. Wait, why would I bother to go write that down? <laughs> shoulda, shoulda. Yeah, maybe you, you so. You never know. Yeah, maybe Chilla. so. He has, he has a plan. Call us. Call us. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's move on to another uh, horror-ish type film that came out the, this week, which is 13 Sins, also known as Angry Little God and 13 Game of Death. Not to be confused with the Bruce Lee film that was retitled Game, Game of, of Death. Death. Um, this is actually an American horror remake of a 2006 Thai horror comedy psychological thriller film called 13 Beloved. And this is really, boy, you know you're in trouble, and I, and I don't mean this as any disrespect towards Ron Perlman, but if that's your only selling point in your marketing, is yeah. look, Ron Perlman's in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, I got to see this during South by Southwest, and we got to actually talk to uh, Ron Perlman for Ooh, a while afterwards, and that was one of the, my favorite interviews ever because he was just he was just phenomenal and so funny and interesting. Uh, that I- interview is on the site, I believe. If you search Ron Perlman, it'll pop up on one of us. But it was hard because I was glad because Brian had set it up and was like, "We want to do an interview with you, not really about the new film, but just talking about sort of the impact of your whole career." And thankfully, he was into it nice. because we wouldn't have been able to say a lot of good things about Aww. Thirteen Cents. Um, the The idea here is this guy is in debt and he's going to get married, and he gets a phone call. He's in trouble. He doesn't know what to do, and he gets a phone call saying, "Hey, you've been entered into this game. If you want to play." You have to do this thing right now. Uh, it's one of thirteen tasks that will that will go on, and if you get through all thirteen tasks, you will make a, just a ridiculous amount. I can't remember how much it was. Like yeah, it's enough to clear all his debts and set him up for life. Right. And the first thing was like, what was it? Like take a bug off the windshield and eat it, or no, something. The like first that? one is 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 crush a fly. Crush a fly for a thousand dollars. For a thousand dollars. The yeah. second one is eat said fly. Yeah. Yeah. And things get, of course like a lot more morally complex from there. And the thing about this is this is a great setup for a movie. It's not a completely unfamiliar one. It's kind of saw-like, if you will, in its own way, but ultimately I thought the the film stumbled when it got into the third act a lot. And the so-called twists weren't very convincing and a little a little see him coming a million miles away. Yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately I just felt a little bored by it. Uh, I mean, I I love Daniel Stamm, the director. He did um, The Last Exorcism, which I think is which is fundamentally terrific. great. Yeah. Um, he's a really nice guy. This is... We've had two films that 
do something very similar in the last couple of years. Uh, we had Would You Rather, which not many people saw, but it's basically a sealed dinner party where everybody has to kind of do something more progressively horrible uh, to win the money. And then we had the phenomenal Cheap Thrills, which is so good. So good. Well, that's, this, that this was part of it. I had already movie. seen Cheap Thrills. And oh, I well, think... I've seen Cheap Thrills and Would You Rather. R- both of which I enjoyed more than this. Yeah, and it just felt like a very lesser version yeah. of that. I mean, it's it's nicely enough executed. Sure. Again, set in New Orleans. It's very professionally made, no question. Yeah, I mean, the, the weird thing is, both this and... I, I, you know, Monkey's Paw feels very Louisiana, but beyond a couple of, of set pieces, you don't really feel that it's in New Orleans specifically. This is definitely in New Orleans but you don't work that out for a while yeah. and then it tries to use specific things about New Orleans um, and doesn't do them overly well and I was like I think Daniel Stan made a mistake by making it in a city he doesn't know as well as he should well, I mean, to make this pay off so, everybody is filming every, everything in New Orleans because yeah, it's so incentives. cheap to make it there um, and all the Filmmakers from tech, all the other film technicians from Texas are working over there because they can come over at the weekends. Yeah, but I, you know, there's like there's a sequence in uh, Blaine Kern's Mardi Gras World, which is where all the um, uh, the the Mardi Gras floats are kept and maintained, and it's phenomenal. I've been in there. It is a filmmaker's dream, and he kind of doesn't really make it work. And I'm like. I don't know. I just yeah, it's a thing. This is a, I, I I like I said. I love his work. I think this is a classic story trope. But somehow this just isn't super thrilling. Yeah, it just not quite there. It keeps trying to elevate things, but it never really feels like the tension is really that escalated because you just never really absorb that fully into it. For one thing, you don't really like the main character from the get-go. <laughs> you know, he's kind of a sleazebag. So it's hard to root for him. And then Ron Perlman's character seems to be there really just to say, hey, look, we have Ron Perlman in this film. Because you could take him out of the movie pretty much entirely, even though he plays into the little, you know, twisty part at the end. You still could take him out of that, and nothing would be missing from it at all. There's a few, like Monkey's Paw, there's a couple of nice set pieces. There's a, a bit where he is challenged to basically wreck his own wedding dinner. And that's kind of nicely handled, and yeah. the way he gets he gets to do it and kind of almost get away with it is kind of nicely handled as well. But I, yeah, it's nothing becomes a wreck. Nothing no. is a huge misstep. It's just all doesn't quite, you know. Especially in comparison, like we said, to some better films that came out recently with a similar idea, it just doesn't quite get there. And it's you know you walk out like people going, "How was it?" Yeah, it was all right, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you if you haven't seen it, we I mean, we talked about it at length. Cheap Thrills is just phenomenal. Yeah, and at least it has the brilliant idea that you take an ordinary guy and you can make him do horrible things. First thing, get him drunk. This guy just does horrible things. He's like, it's money. Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay. Well, then I'm kind of not on board with what you're doing because you just probably are a little bit of a scumbag after a while. Yeah. Uh, or even Would You Rather, which again has a great setup for why they're there, and has Sasha Gray in one of her better acting roles huh. because she turns up and is just horrible. She's a horrible human being. And I, you know, I'd recommend if you like this kind of story, watch Thirteen Sins. If you have limited tolerance, watch uh, Would You Rather and, and Cheap Thrills. If you have very limited tolerance, just watch Cheap Thrills because it's the best example of this kind of storytelling out there at the moment. Absolutely. Sorry, Daniel. I love your work. But yeah, yeah, yeah I just, do too. Yeah. But And like I said, it's professionally made. It just felt like 
I don't know. It just didn't fire on all cylinders. Uh, this comes with an audio commentary from the director, writer, and oh, which uh, lead is so actor. boring. Is it really? It's Did so you... boring. It's it, Daniel Stamp just like, burr, burr, burr. and uh, I'm like, oh, but Daniel, I like your work. Why it's contractually you not... obliged. Yeah, I, to... I get the feeling he's not overly proud of this one. It's, it's you know, it's uh, kind of like eh, it was for hire. There's an eight and a half minute making of a one deleted sequence, an alternate ending. I did not watch the alternate ending. Did you? Uh, Twilight Zone ish kind of like oh oh, but look oh, because mm. yeah, oh, yeah, it very yeah. much. Yeah. It, it was the, it was the. It's an even more obvious ending than the one they go with. Uh, and then there's a apparently the director introduces a behind the scenes moment where the writer David Burke has a freak out on Skype at the director over his suggestion they delete a scene on which the, he's been working at for several days, which seems to me kind of... Kind of dickish. I haven't yeah, seen that one, but I, I, no, no, I wish I had. Kind of, kind of dickish. I was like, <laughs> did he approve of that going on here? Because I don't think he did. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing to do. Anyway, let's move on to a horror film I didn't get to see, but you did, that I hear much better things about, and that is not the TV show, but the movie Almost Human. <laughs> they last about as long. Oh, oh see, don't harsh, be like that. Harsh. That's your heart. You're breaking my heart over here. I know it was a, it was a nice idea. Just <laughs> like to never found the audience. Um, this is if you like eighty early eighties cheap splatter sci fi. This is absolutely up your street. Um, basic idea. I'm bunch, listening. Bunch of guys <laughs> in in Maine. You know, there's a guy at home in Maine one day, and this is frantic banging on his door and he goes downstairs and his friend's there going, our other friend has been abducted. Ah, 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 he's been stolen by aliens. And he goes, what the fuck are you talking about? Goes outside with a shotgun and suddenly this blue light goes, whoop, and he disappears. Fast forward two years, um, everybody's going, well, don't know what happened to him, but he disappeared, his girlfriend's moved on, his friend has been, you know, initially investigated for his disappearance and now is, um, is, re- uh, is getting on with his life. And suddenly he turns up covered in this, naked, covered in this thin layer of alien goo. Okay, you know what? I actually have seen this. Have now you? that you're saying it. Yeah, I must have seen it at Fantastic Fest. I didn't think I did, but describe it. It's like, okay, I saw this, but yeah. continue. Yeah. I don't remember it that well, so go no. <laughs> It must have been one of the last days. That... <laughs> it all, the air gets thin towards the end. Fair enough. Um, uh, and so he turns up and goes on a killing spree trying to get back to his... As uh, you do. His, his ex-fiancee who he wants to impregnate because somebody saw Extro once. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is an homage to 80s splatter. Um, there's some really good gore effects, and that's what it, that's what you're here for. You're not here for great character development, because frankly, most of the cast is like, eh, they're okay, they know what a line is. I mean, this is, this is cheapo beyond cheapo budgeting. Literally no one has their own Wikipedia page of yeah, the cast. Which, you, which is a, a, sad, a sad, sad indictment. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the best thing about it is uh, Josh Athia, uh, who plays Mark, the guy who comes back, who's kind of this big, burly, redneck guy, who, frankly, kudos to him for daring. And you can see in one of the extras when they, when they show him in his I've returned from, from the alien spaceship, which you never see. And he's naked in the main winter, and he looks so cold and sad that he was like, "I'm damn it, I'm doing the nude scene." Um, <laughs> you know, it kind of pushes a, a few buttons in the way that 80s splatter stuff did. If you don't like collapsed skulls, this is a bad place. There's kind of a weird a- alien tube oral sex slash rape scene that is like yeah. uh okay yeah they kind of did that stuff at the time it was a bit easier to get get away with on vhs this is kind of like 
I don't know. Um, I mean, it's it's gooey, it's gory, it's undemanding, it's kind of fun. Uh, you got to be in the mood for it, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, and the director, this is uh, uh, Joe Bagos. Joe Bagos. This is his first um, film. They do actually include uh, as an extra the um, the short version that he did of this as an original uh, teaser, which has also got Mark uh, uh, John Etienne. Um It's you know. I, it's fun if you like this kind of thing, and I and I do. I have to say, it's not demanding. It's not going. to... Yeah. There's a making of that's almost as long as the oh, movie. Oh god, making of, making of is really like elaborate, and you, you must have more friends with cameras hanging around than cameramen. Um, no great shakes, but but fun enough. Um, it's one of those you could see the guy going on to do, you know, better stuff. Yeah, with a. You know, not inauspicious beginning, but like a sort of like, look, we did the best we could with the money we had, and we still made a watchable film. Yeah, and and he does actually say explicitly this was a tribute to that kind of old shot on 16mm released on VHS films. I actually, from a visual point of view, do wish that he'd gone the extra mile and actually shot on uh, on 16mm. Good luck finding, you know, stock. (laughs) Well, there is actually that... um, Joe Swanberg, his new film, yeah. Happy Christmas, he did actually shoot on 16mm, and somebody said, well, why have you shot it on 16mm? He said, because it's the last chance I'll ever get. Yeah. But uh, don't do it now, I'll never be And he to. probably paid a lot for that stuff. Oh, yeah, it probably wasn't cheap. Um, God, Anna Kendrick likes him and probably works for Peanuts with it for a bit. Like, True. I can make real money off, off Pitch Perfect 3. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed this. I like, it is, it's, good old splatter, and there's not many people making that and making it, and not going so far that it's like, August underground. Look, we've got ten pounds of meat, and we're just throwing it at the screen. Uh, if I remember my my misgivings about this, were largely that you know I too big X Files fan from you know the best periods of it, like seasons one through five, where it's just phenomenal. And I find the idea of abduction and aliens and all that. I don't believe in it. I mean, I think aliens exist out there. I'm with uh, I can't remember what comedian. It's like, oh yeah, I'm sure the galaxy is teeming with life i just don't think they've come here yeah. <laughs> uh, but the idea of it i find very frightening and i always get, get you know I'm, it's not fair to say i'm irritated the directors or anything it's a fair thing to do but i'm always excited at first like oh cool it's gonna be an alien abduction movie and then it's just a slasher movie after yeah. that you're like oh well really this isn't an alien film at all but it does have good kills it does you know, have it's, good it, kills it, it, it's one of the better low budget slasher movies of the past few years i mean there's a lot of Crushing and shooting and grinding and, and yeah, if you want to see gross outs, this is yeah, filled with this them. Is good enough. Well, let's talk about a sort of psychological horror, I guess. Film. It's hard to really know what to define this this film as. I guess it's a thriller technically, but it certainly has horror elements to it. Uh, called Enemy. This is a 2014 Canadian film that is uh, loosely adapted from a novel called The Double. Very loosely. Very, 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 very loosely. loosely? Okay. admit how loosely it is. Okay. Uh, and it stars Jake Gyllenhaal in two roles. Uh, Melanie Laurent, Isabella Rossellini, Sarah Gaddon, Stephen A. R. Hart. It, it's got a great cast. It's just an extremely odd little movie. It's almost like quiet Cronenberg yeah. in a weird sort of way. It's very Canadian. Yeah. Very Canadian. I don't mean, you know, drinking Molson and, and uh, playing hockey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the basic idea is that Jake Gyllenhaal plays this, these two guys who are identical. One of them is a history history lecturer. The other is a bit part actor. And the historian, the history teacher, sees himself in a film and goes and hunts down 
this IMDb page and goes, oh, well, this guy who looks exactly like me and go and goes out to find him. Yeah, and they... Which is when it gets weird. They, one misstep I felt they do in here was not writing out of the story immediately the possibility that they're just identical twins. Because you spend 30 or 40 minutes going, you're identical twins. Why is no one even discussing this? And then eventually it's not even really, they just, it's like exposition, like, well, we're not twins. We know that without really being explained how they know. But okay, at least you said it finally, but it was kind of like... I was sitting there being frustrated for a while. Well, I, I, that, that was one of the things the filmmakers were going for. Uh, and they talk about this in the extras, which are actually pretty good. Um, is that they wanted it to be very ambiguous because it's ambiguous in, in the book exactly what the relationship between them is. I think this is a film where you're supposed to kind of bring your own interpretations to a lot of it. Uh, you know, are they twins? Are they actually the same person having a, a meltdown? Is there actually something science fiction or supernatural happening and it's really kind of like what you bring to the party is what defines what you will think of it it is beautiful in a very brutal way you know it's oh yeah i mean mean, cinematography of this is just gorgeous no question it's it you know it's it's concrete and everything has this kind of sick yellow overtone uh, as the two different iterations of the uh, the, the John Hall character start mentally imploding, and you're like, well, is one of them sicker than the other? You know, are they both abusive? Are they, is it just one mind collapsing? And I actually really liked that. I mean, it, it kind of struck me in some ways as a at least kin uh, to Under the Skin. Sure. Which yeah. I, you know, is one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, I, I don't love this quite as much as I love that, but I, I really was taken by, I, I wanted to go back and rewatch it because it pulls some interesting moments out that you go, I need to go back and reconsider what I, th- not, not just watch it and, and go, well, hang on, did I read that right? But to go back and reconsider what I thought about it. Well, it's, it, I agree with you at the same time. Um, I do get a little frustrated sometimes by films that per- not only don't provide any answers, but don't even provide the outlines of answers for what they're about other than, hey, you can interpret it any way you want. You know, uh, it's, I guess, Ka- Kafka-esque, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, the one thing that made me laugh is the very, very, very ending, like the last shot, is so absurd and I, I've yet to find anybody who can figure out what the fuck it's supposed to mean. Yeah. The, every discussion I had, everyone's like, I have no clue what that had to do with anything. Um, it reminds me of, have you ever seen the Greg Araki film, Nowhere? Yes. How that ends? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it reminded me completely of that, except without the tongue in cheek, you know? Well, the, 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 there's, there's a, a bit of symbolism that runs through this that is not in the book, and they admit that this is cut from a whole cloth. And either you're down with it or you're not. And it's it's going to freak a lot of people. That's one of those where out. I where I'm like, I really that, part of why I want to go back and, and rewatch it because there's something implied all the way through about something odd happening. Yeah, something maybe inhuman. It's not. It's not just these two guys. It's not as simple as these two guys who look like each other and might be twins, might not, might be clones, might not. I mean, none of the, the real reasons are even explored of how this could be it just is and it shouldn't be and that around the fringes of everything there seems to be yeah something is off something is obtuse something to do with arachnids yeah but it's not really clear what that has to do with anything and isabella rossellini 
turning up and uh, she has a great speech where if you go back and, and think about it at the end of the film you it may be that's where all the clues are mm. um but again this is i mean this is a very obtuse oddball little film that works because i wanted to go back and watch it again which is kind of thing i think the purpose of a film like this it makes you want to go and unpack more of its more of its odd corners it's beautiful looking it's got great performances it just leaves you with the first it feels it's the first chapter or the first couple chapters of a much more interesting book yeah is what it feels like and then it's like well you know write the rest yourself yeah <laughs> <laughs> um some people are going to absolutely love this and some people are going to walk out of it and just throw pull the disc out of their player and stomp it on, on the floor and and never speak of it again <laughs> so you probably you don't already like know- spiders you you're really on for the wrong film as well right yeah. uh you are probably already know which sort of person you are it only comes with one extra which is a 17 and a half minute making of enemy uh with lots of commentary about just admitting that, yeah, we know you're not going to understand what this is about. So <laughs> we weren't trying to do that either. We weren't trying to let you know what was actually going on, as sad as that is. All right. So let's move on to a film I saw. You did not get to see, I'm afraid, called Omar. I'm actually a week late getting to this one, and I apologize to it. It just didn't quite make it into my screening schedule for last week. But this was one I really wanted to see because it was screened at uh, Cannes Film Festival where it won the jury prize. It it was selected as the Palestinian entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy oh, wow. Awards and was nominated and won Best Feature Film at the 2013 Asian Pacific Screen Awards. So I was like, well, that's a lot of pretty remarkable kudos going on right there. Even though I've generally found a lot of uh, Middle Eastern films, while they're good, they're just not to my taste. They're very dry. They're very slow moving. They're very character based. I mean, it's the thing you watch, you go, this is good for people who like these kind of films. But I find that they move so impenetrably slow. And a lot of that has to do with just we didn't have anything vaguely resembling a budget. Yeah. You know, and plus we're very limited of where and when we were allowed to film anything. Because we might get shot at. Omar is the first one of these films that actually, for me, really worked. It's a thriller. Which I did not expect at all. And a thriller with really interesting characters and and fascinating moral arcs. With this character, the lead guy, Omar, he's got two friends, uh, uh, Tarek and Amjad, who are, who are, they, they live in Palestine and they are not big fans of the Israeli occupation. Big surprise. Shocking. Yeah. Uh, and we find out that both Omar and Amjad both are in love with the same girl who is, uh, their big scary friend, Tarek's sister, who is admittedly extremely hot. Yeah. But she's clearly got a thing for Omar. He keeps sneaking. I, I was unclear on this because I admit my knowledge of the Middle East is not what it should be. But there's like a big wall that's not over into Israel because everybody's Palestinian in this scenario. And he always has to like throw a rope over the wall and climb over it just to get to her house. I was unclear about what was going on there. Is it just random walls set up at points? I don't know. I really don't know enough about what's <laughs> happening. I know it's in the West Bank somewhere. That's because someone actually says West Bank. So there you go. We need to get you a map. <laughs> like, apparently. I used to know a long map time ago. To time. <laughs> um, but the three friends decide that they... It's, you know, as men, it's important for them to do something about the scenario. So they train themselves all to shoot and they get a plan to just, and it's not much of a plan to sneak through the woods right near the border and shoot at least one Israeli guard and then get away, which they do. But, uh, a little later on, the Israeli, 
occupiers catch up with Omar, beat the crap out of him, throw him in a cell. And it turns into sort of like a, is he or isn't he turning evidence or helping, is he helping the Israelis? Is he helping, trying to just, is he just playing them and there to help his friends? Is he playing both sides against the middle? And how does his allegiance to him wanting to hook up with uh, uh, Nadia how is that affecting in all of this? And the fact there's a love triangle, the fact that like maybe his friend Amjad isn't being completely honest with him about it, uh, his relationship with Nadia. There's all these different elements going on that make this a really fascinating and pretty fast moving film. Nice. Yeah. Really enjoyed this. It's, you really are concerned for Omar and it has this just whip snap, like, holy shit of an ending. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, Damn, that was like the perfect way to do this. Black as hell, but just like, I got to hand it to you. This had me from beginning to end. Really good stuff. Uh, you know, sometimes these sort of films you get all that regard internationally for. You see it and then you're like, okay, I get it. The occupations are bad. Can we just tell a story other than that at some point? Can you add a story onto that? Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do get the feeling that... Bella Attar is just too much of an influence in that area of the world, and it can get just... It, it's like they're in a phase still, I think, of like what was getting out and getting any kind of distribution or festival distribution is kind of what was getting out of Eastern Europe in the, the, the 70s and 80s. It was, like, yeah. it was very worthy. Yeah. And not necessarily very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think Omar is a film that manages to both educate you on the scenario to some extent because clearly i still don't know what the hell's going on because clearly i'm an american idiot uh as green day would say and uh entertains the hell out of you at the same time i mean it actually has something to say but you're gonna have fun while it's saying it. nice so highly recommend omar let's move on hmm hmm oh dear let's walk on the walk of shame no yes no, we're, we're walking no. in shame Oh, I hate you so much. This is, I think I can Change s- of tone. say the worst film we're probably going to take a look at this week. Um, this is a... If it's not, then cinema should just stop. This is an American film that came out in theaters. Oh, God. Believe it or not, they uh, didn't screen it for press last year that is labeled as comedy. Labeled. And uh, focus, focus features. Now, the thing about this is, I'm a huge fan of this... Uh, film star Elizabeth Banks. I think she is genuinely funny as hell and really smart and really charming. And even in this otherwise not very good film, that charm does get across. You get that, okay, she was convinced that this was going to be a good... I mean, how often does a woman really get to be the lead in any film these days? So, you know... It's a good opportunity. At least it looked like that. I mean, she's playing opposite James Marsden, who is, you know, very good actor, very studly, very respectable. Um, What could possibly go wrong? The (laughs) the script. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, she's a reporter. She uh, wants to be a news anchor and her opportunity is coming up. But like on the same night, both her fiance dumps her and... She finds out that they passed her up for the job and they're giving it to somebody else. So she's like, even though she's always been the good girl, the one who always does things straight and narrow, is following the path. She uh, listens to her no good friends, uh, played by Gillian Jacobs from uh, Community. And I believe it was Sarah Wright, who I recognized. And I was like, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? And it was killing me. And I still don't know. So that's just why I'm clicking on it now. Um, Parks and Recreation, I believe, uh, is what that, yeah. where I know her from. But... uh 
they all go out and they have a big, crazy, drunken, ridiculous night. And uh, she ends up going home with the, the nice bartender, James Marsden, and they have wild, crazy sex. Or and, not. Or they might just get very drunk and, like, do doofy do stuff. It's never quite clear whether, like... They insinuate anything. pretty strongly. It's insinuated, it, but considering, like, this film doesn't have the subtlety to insinuate anything, I don't know it. it didn't at happen. one point... Uh, somebody accusing her of her being a prostitute says like have you had a penis in your mouth tonight and she's like ah. uh, <laughs> you go okay so she did yeah. in fact at least blow Good him point. Um, she leaves the she's like oh shit I'm gonna sneak out because I you know uh, she's kind of a mess and her the wearing her friends you know more revealing yellow dress that she agreed to uncharacteristically wear to the night before and she gets locked out of the guy's place and she's just too full of herself too full of pride to bang on the door to be let back in basically leaves her her car is gone it's been towed uh, her purse was in her car so that's gone she left her phone in the apartment despite the fact I could have sworn they showed her taking a phone call on the street right in yeah. the beginning. I was like, wait, she had her phone after that. Because one of the, the elements here is that she gets really excited to make it back because she finds out they passed up the other woman. Yeah. And decided to go Good with her, point. give her a chance again. So I was like, wait, I could have sworn that happened outside the apartment. Well, I mean, they didn't bother continuity. I mean, you know, they weren't bothering with many jokes either in this film. True. And what they had didn't really work all that well. But she's like, okay, she's got eight hours to make it to the station. She's on the other side of the city. And, you know, I started out optimistic about this because it's like, great, it's going to be a female after hours. You know, one of my favorite, favorite Scorsese films that's very underseen. I mean, After Hours is hysterical. This is not. <laughs> this, is, this is less funny date night. And it's, yeah, it's, which wasn't funny. No. So. <laughs> it's just, if it had been once, even twice, with someone assuming she was a prostitute, you know, in this film, because the way she was dressed, it would have been okay, and then move on to something else. But this whole movie is about people assuming that she's a prostitute. And that sort of, like, just... Let's laugh at the misogyny of it. Got old for me pretty quickly. Yeah, and and I don't know. I think it went to the the well of lazy racial stereotype humor a few times too many. She runs into some crack dealers, all of whom are black. Uh, the taxi driver is a big, fat, greasy, hairy Russian guy, and it's like, uh, really, we're going there. Uh, and then she ends up in a massage parlor. With an uh, with an old Asian lady who who it's like every dull cliche that you could have done in the last sixty years. You know, it's like the you know the apartment. You know, of like you know lazy stereotypes. I'm just like, I, I, just nothing was new or fresh or interesting about this. And yeah, I can imagine Elizabeth Bank going, you know what. It's a script. I'm the lead. No, I'm not being challenged in this. I'm not just you know there for it to be a romantic subplot. Yeah, okay, I'm down with this. But then I'm like, oh god, I wish the script was better for her. Yeah, I mean, there's. It's a great setup that is completely wasted with subpar writing and reliance on not even offensive racial stereotypes. Just like, hey, look. Asian massage parlor person and, you know, obnoxious Russian cab driver and, just, you know, uh, uh, scary but eventually lovable crack dealers, <laughs> which I actually thought was a, a gig, that, a joke that did kind of work. They, that, was, that was actually the best bit of the film, yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. the, was the, the, three, the three crack dealers going, 
So, are you the lady from TV or not? And the most, the most strung out one is the one who actually realizes, like, oh yeah, she's actually the lady from TV, and she's nice. Yeah, so. it's like, ah, uh, this is on that pile of utterly immemorable comedies. Yeah, and there's nothing that uh, there's, feels like more of a waste of cinema than a, a comedy you don't remember. There, there's no there's one memorable thing in here because it shocked me, and maybe I just missed him and other stuff. But Ethan Supley having lost a ton of weight and being oh, yes. relatively trim as yeah. a cop in this. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was, I, I was, Wasn't that the guy in Mallrats staring at the, looking for the sailboat? I didn't even notice it was him until I read the credits. I was like, really? Yeah. What? I know. Huh. He's like, you know, the funny fat guy can only work for so long as long as there aren't funny or fat guys. And well, there the, are, the funny fat so. guy can only work for so long until his doctor goes, you might want to drop some of that sometime. True. Look what happens to the funny fat guys before you. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just hold up a picture of John Candy and go, no. Yep. Or Chris Farley. Oh. Or John Belushi. Shut up. Anyway. Now we'll start talking about Jim Belushi and that won't be sad. No, let's uh, not talk about that ever. either. Uh, or even Kevin Nealon, who has a small appearance in here, who, generally speaking, if he's in a movie, it's usually just kind of sad. You're like, oh, Kevin, we had such hopes for you when you were in one of the best casts in Saturday Night Live history. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Walk of Shame should itself... Just do a walk of shame. It just it should have to walk home from the video store and like with its head hung low and then jump into the dustbin. Just thinking about what it did. Yeah, just <laughs> you go home and you think about what you did. Well, actually, no, I wouldn't even wish that on the movie itself uh, it's to think about what it did. Sadness. It really is. Well, let's talk about something that isn't quite as sad, and that is reportedly this movie you saw, The Final Member. Oh, yes. I did not get to see this one either. This is uh, Alamo releasing, put this out, and I have... Uh, hell of a hot. I have to call and wheedle and cajole to get anything from Alamo Films now for some reason. Really? Yeah, I mean, they'll send it to me, but I've got to find the exact right person who yeah, supposed the, to talk uh, to. Yeah, a lot of their national... Uh, sorry, inside baseball here for a, a moment, yeah. folks, but a lot of their national level press seems to vary from film to film, so you don't necessarily know the one person you're talking to, and I know yeah. they're trying to, they're trying to uh, sort some of that out. Um, this is a 2000... Uh, I want to say 2012 documentary... Um, about the world's only penis museum. Oh, good lord! Yes, uh, is this like like is it a comedy? No, this is a documentary. Okay, uh, it is the world's only penis museum is in Iceland, and it started off as this private collection of this. Uh, he was a, a, a headmaster at a <laughs> high school, <Headmaster>. and um, <laughs> stop that. <laughs> Sorry. Puns ahoy! Uh, you know, it's going to be hard for you to uh, hard to get through this hey, whole oh, review without me going, and <laughs> beavis and butt-editing it. But. You, you will. Um, and that's part of what they do. They admit this is kind of, you know, there's something hilarious about this number of penises. Because he started off, he was given a, uh, a whip made out of a bull's penis. Good lord. By one of his co-workers who thought it was hilarious. Because the... the Icelanders are really kind of like... They're very earthy people. And they're like... It's a penis museum. So he got this, and he started getting more, and he like you know collecting them. And finally, he had so he had so many penises around the house that this is as is the way with such things. His wife went, "No, you have to either build a museum or get rid of these because this is getting ridiculous now." So he built a museum, uh, and it gets to the point where he is only lacking one variety of schlong uh, to complete the collection. That is the final member of the title. And that is a human penis. Oh. Isn't there, uh, isn't Dillinger's penis available somewhere? Well, I think so, but he wanted it in a very, he wanted it stored in a particular way, you know, as, you know, not to be 
sensationalized. I mean, just it's it's an example. You know, it's another medical example. And it's but the only problem is in Iceland, it's very very hard <laughs> um, to uh, get hold of um, <laughs> human medical parts for display, uh, and more importantly. Yeah, the Icelanders themselves are very loath to, you know, for anybody, because it's such a small country, it's 300,000 people, that you are all bound to know if somebody leaves their penis. So he's, it, he has this real problem finding anybody who's going give to give him their penis. It comes down to one guy who was this amazing um, serial womanizer slash adventurer who's kind of a, a, an icon in the country, but he's getting very old now, and he wants to leave his penis because he's like, I've put this everywhere, ladies. <laughs> And then this crazy American guy, who still wants, he wants to give him the penis while he's still alive. And that's wait, the guy wants to give him yeah, his penis, and like yeah. he's not like it's not like he's gonna like die by having his penis cut off. He just doesn't need it anymore. Uh, I mean, well, I've had weekends like that. So well, I we, know. The, <laughs> gnaw it off. Uh, no, it, but the, then you come to there's a lot of explanation of why he wants. Want to read. And it actually gets quite tragic in places. But then there's the battle between those two guys to being able to, the first one to give their penis, because obviously the Icelandic guys go, well, you get it when I'm dead, so you have to wait till then. Sure. The guys go, That's a sensible no, answer. I want to give it to you now, which is creepier than waiting for somebody dead to chop their penis off. True. Um, and he has these whole ideas like, well, I'm going to have it. He actually at one point has his dick tattooed uh, with the, the, uh, the Stars and Stripes. So people will know it's an American penis, my guy. America. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's really great about this documentary is that you have a subject which is so sensational, so crazy, and the, the filmmakers actually treat it very respectfully. And there's some really fun sociological stuff about it. Like, you know, we're actually at a time where people are less likely to talk about penises than historically, and they have these like great old anecdotes from. Um, Scandinavian legend about you know there's this is one story about this woman who wants who wants to uh, get divorced because her husband's penis isn't big enough and they actually set a legal precedent for what is a big enough penis seriously <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's really and like anything less and it's a violation of the marriage contract it's you know this could have been very much <laughs> kind of you know, kind but they of play poignant. it so straight they play it so straight <laughs> straight and narrow <laughs> They take a, hard, a long, hard look. Yeah, hey. they did. That's the third hard reference. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> Straight down the middle. Cock! Penis. <laughs> uh, and it, but, it, you know, it's very respectful of the subject matter and the fact that the guy who owns the museum, it, you know, this is his life's work. And he's trying to do something serious and trying to not scare people, have people just come and go, oh, penis, but going, look, this is something that half the planet has and we never talk about it. Um, I did discover something fascinating. Yes. Uh, the common American possum has two penises. Really? Yeah. That's odd. There's also a lot of species which have bones in their penis. Huh. Uh, he has... Uh, there's a great shot where, where he gets given uh, a sperm whale. <laughs> oh, good lord. Sperm whale. Yeah, I don't Penis. Know. Sperm. If you're going to have a whale penis, it sperm. seems like the sperm whale's the way to go. Uh, and this thing is just ridiculously huge. And like, there's two of them trying to like maneuver it around and stick it into the, the vat. And they go, wow, that's really big. And he went, no, this is just the, 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 the end third. And oh you're like, my oh, God. my God. No, oh, that must just be creepy. And then it makes you think about how whales have sex. Yeah, I don't want to think about that either. Uh, they kind of angle 
um, and, and wangle and dangle. Yeah, there's a lot of animals that have difficulty with it. I yeah. always think the the pig with the curled has the curled member, isn't it? The pig that's yep. got the curled penis. Well, it's I like think, you I would think, think like, do they require another pig to screw them in? No, I think they kind of get in and then expand a bit more and lock, uh, which does lead to the hilarity of if the female pig wants to go for a walk, the male pig's on the back going ah. <laughs> but then uh, pigs uh, are one of the other species that enjoy sex. Yes, yeah. that's true. That actually like it. Yeah. As opposed to cats, who apparently have one of the most painful yeah. uh, sexual experiences. Uh, and dolphins are very rapey. Dolphins are rapey. There we go. That's true. Is, is this, you know, at the end of the day, I really hope that the legacy of, of this podcast is we finally get rapey uh, into uh, the dictionary. Into the le- general lexicon. Into <laughs> the general lexicon <laughs> as, as an adjective. We certainly have made everyone familiar with the word penis. Penis. We've actually said it more times in this particular cast than ever any previous digital noise cast, which seems unlikely, I know. <laughs> but there Give it us is. time. Uh, no, it's, this, is a, this is a great release. It's a really fascinating documentary. Uh, if you buy the deluxe edition, it comes with one of the best extras I have ever seen, or, or rather giveaways. Uh, it comes with a pickled bull's penis. Seriously? Yeah, if you buy the, if buy the uh, deluxe edition. Wait, intended to be eaten? No, 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 just for your private collection. Okay. Um, and also, every DVD uh, comes with a certificate so that you can, if you wish, bequeath your penis to the Icelandic Penis Museum. So someday they'll just have a whole wall of human penises. Not mine. Not mine either. Not mine. I, you know, I, that doesn't count as medical science as far as no. I'm concerned. All right. Well, let's move on to another film. This is one I got to see you didn't get to see. Nope. At least I don't think so. Called No Clue, which Ooh, is... Ooh, an- David Coach. Which, indeed, which is another uh, Canadian comedy. This is a Canadian... They call it dark comedy. It really isn't. It's, it's actually very light... Uh, sort of satire of film noir starring Brent Butt. Uh, <laughs> unfortunate name, but he is Who a... Con- penis and Butt in the it, same episode. I know, right? the best episode it, ever! Apparently he's an actor and writer from Canada who was on the CTV sitcom Corner Gas, which I never even heard of, uh, which was a huge hit in Canada, apparently. Also created another hit show called Hiccups. Never heard of it. But, you know, I'm totally unfamiliar with this guy, but he is the star, and he is genuinely, to me anyway, really funny in this movie. It's one of those, not a, it's not going to be everybody's type of humor. He's kind of a nebbishy type guy who runs a, a company for putting logos on pens and swizzle sticks, who, when Amy Smart sashays into his office, who she th- just has made a mistake and thinks it's a private detective's office, which is actually down the hall, he's so, you know taken with the fact that she's hot, she's in his office, and she's begging for help. Well, yeah. Yeah. She's also, like, four feet high, apparently. So I I practically stepped on her at Fantastic Fest one one time. Yeah, she's like Danny Trejo tall. It's, like, really small. (laughs) Um, Danny Trejo, also. He is tiny. Very, very tiny. Very very broad. Very broad. Anyway, uh, she comes in saying, my brother, he's missing. He was this head programmer at this big game company. Uh... I don't know what happened. I'll do anything. Please help me. And he's like, okay. And, you know, David Ketchner appears in this as his friend, who's kind of like, as he calls himself, I'm just a weekend geek. I'm not a full-time geek. (laughs) But on the weekends, I'm a full-time geek. Uh, Who... You know, he's kind of a redneck, and he's he's there to to give him bad advice, basically. And eventually it turns into less of a stumble comedy and more of an actual mystery as the guy actually starts finding out he's not bad at this, huh. at, at, like, figuring this out and putting the pieces together. And, of course, you know, I mean, not everything is as it seems. I mean, anytime a beautiful woman comes into a private detective's office, she is never, ever, ever telling the whole truth. <laughs> <laughs> ever. 
It's a given. <laughs> yeah, in any in a movie, anyway. Uh, I mean, this is not what you would call one of those. I mean, you can see why this didn't come out in theaters. It's directed DVD, and it's rightfully so directed DVD. But it's one of those if you just discovered it, you'd be like, oh. That was actually kind of cute and funny. I'm surprised how much I enjoyed that. It's a go in with low expectations, come out with like, that was not an unpleasurable way to spend an hour and a half. Is, is this another of those films that make you realize that David Kirchner is actually secretly the funniest and one of the most talented people on the planet, or is it just okay? He's got a smaller role in this, to be sure. I mean, this is Brett but- Brent Butt's uh, show. I know, I know. His the name Butt is Show. Butt. <laughs> it's The Butt we Show. We are five. He actually, it's a great intro to people to see who this guy is, because I was like, I never heard of him, and he has got, he's just one of those people, they throw him in to everyone else in the movie playing the straight man to him. Like, everybody's the straight man, and he's the guy who's just constantly chattering and is nervous, but is the funniest guy in the room, too. And it actually works more than it doesn't for me. Some people are going to find him obnoxious. I thought he was really funny, and as much as this is a tiny little movie... It was kind of a, wow, now I'm going to be noticing this guy and what he's in in the future film for me. Oh, so Nothing like a good calling card. Indeed. <laughs> All right. I didn't want to spend too much time on that because I know you hadn't seen it either. Let's talk about one we both saw and move on to the Criterion section of the cast. Oh, I feel posh. <laughs> you feel posh. Oh, feel... tea and crumpets. <laughs> well, actually, with this, I think I should be wearing a beret and smoking galois. True, because this is uh, Judex, a 1963 film. The second uh, film based on this character is uh, a French film. The original was in 1916. That is, look, let me, all right, cut out all the pretension. You guys like superhero films? This is one of the first superhero films. Yes. This predates adaptations of a lot of other stuff. And really, even though the character of, uh, I believe the character of the shadow does in fact predate Judex, I think. I know. I, cause I think they're pretty content. They, is this it about the same time? Because it, but it, this it, is for all extents and purposes. He's the French shadow, Yeah, you know, and this is a very pulpy kind of tongue in cheek, even a little campy, uh, superhero story but the guy who looks just like the shadow yeah <laughs> who doesn't have the power to cloud mind he doesn't really have powers he's really more just like he's got a network of informants and he's very good at doing physical things and what have you um but it, the whole thing feels like that totally and the idea here is there's this nasty rich guy a banker favreau who receives right from them getting a threatening note from judex demanding that he pay back all the people he swindled or he will suffer and we see him like in the middle of his dinner, this dinner party to to announce his daughter's engagement and all sorts of stuff. He he just dies, like when giving a toast. And you're like, oh shit, Judex is kind of a villain. But no, he old boys him. Yeah, and has just drugged him with something that makes him seem like he's dead. You know, a serpent in the rainbowish type concoction, and has decided to keep him in a private prison in his magical underground lair which even has like sci-fi opening rock walls that make a sound it is is the classic science fiction sound which I don't know how they did but it's in every 1960s science fiction yeah and this is 1936 so it was predating all that shit no no this is uh, isn't this oh I'm sorry you're right this is not yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'm sorry other way around but um, this you know, it gets more complicated from there. There's other people who are in... The, I don't want to give away too much because there's like some of the characters in it turn out to be the real villains. There's some 
incredibly memorable cinematography in yeah. this. Like, there's some shots that are like, wow, there's a lot of modern superhero films that were informed heavily by this movie. And I've never even heard of it before yeah. now. Well, this is, this is uh, uh, <coughs> the, I think, third film by uh, Georges Franjou, uh, most famous for uh, directing Eyes Without a Face. Which is incredible, yeah, by the way. Which is, yeah, which is a, a landmark in, in truly creepy cinema. Yeah. Uh, he reunites uh, with, his, uh, with Edith Scobb, who was the actress who plays the faceless... Um, Ingenue in Eyes Without a Face, but he, I think they did every film together. Um, and she plays the daughter of the banker. Um, uh, Channing Pollock, who was actually a stage magician, plays an American, the, an American stage, stage, uh, stage magician. Who Italian studios were trying to turn into the, the next Rudolph Valentino. Yeah, how did that work out? <laughs> As you say, who? What's his name? Channing Tatum? What? Yeah, Charlie <laughs> Potato. Um, you know, it, it's a it's kind of a you like this, I think, more than I did. It's a bit of a mixed bag because basically it's French New Wave trying to do a silent all the the trimmings of a black and white and early twentieth century. Yeah, and it's 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 cornball. It's got some. It's it's cornball, but it's almost not quite cornball enough. Mm. Um, and I think the mistake that uh, Franju made, he had. Uh, Maurice Jarre doing a soundtrack, but it's absent for most of the film. And you kind of really feel like, oh, you needed some beats in here to work to say, oh, we're being kind of sweet and charming or, or crazy. This is not his best film. It is fascinating. And No, um, it's not as good as Eyes Without a Face, no question. And I agree with you about the music, although when it is present, it's very noticeable in a good way. You're like, wow, that's really cool what they're doing right now with the music. There's a terrific fight scene on a roof where they choose to, rather than have bombastic film music, it's all played very silently, but very this nefarious you know, music that normally would feel like it would be bombastic and yeah. here is sort of like nah, nah, this lurking horror thing that is really neat the way they do it. Uh, although that film is dependent on the fact that a, a uh, circus just happens to go past at that precise moment and one of the characters actually knows. Well, that's the it, thing. It's like so coincidental. I'm this like, is, it's, it, it's cheesy. But that's the point where it's like you, you needed more clues earlier on that that was the tone he was going for. It was an adaptation and a tribute to the classic serials. Yeah. And if you don't know that, you're going to be wondering what the fuck is going on with this movie early on. It's a movie that's actually helped by understanding that. And when it came out, everyone did understand yeah. that. I mean, Judex was a very well-known character in France. Yeah. I mean, it's, and Judex is part of that tradition of, of characters like Danger Diabolique and, yeah. and Phantomass. And in fact, uh, I, this only got made because he couldn't, because he couldn't get the rights to make Phantomass. <laughs> right. Well, it, it was also, uh, or at least I know the character of Judix was one of those that the original creator of Phantomass, and I forget his other character, but um, were both actually villains. And people started to go, is there any chance you're going to make a character we can actually root for? Yeah. <laughs> and Judex is basically those characters, but a good guy. Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, I mean, like, I I'd kind of would have rather have seen Phantomass, especially in today's anti-hero yeah. world. But there, I mean, there are some... Some beautiful moments in this. There's an incredible sequence at a masquerade ball, oh, uh, which is just stellar. I mean, it's, it, visually, that's as, as, as good as anything the director did in his entire career. And like we said, he did Eyes Without a Face, which is one of the creepiest films ever. Yeah. Um, for me, actually much better than the film, which I liked, didn't love, are the extras. 
The extras on this are phenomenal, not least because there's a really great um, 50 minute documentary on the career of Georges Franju, um, which was taken from a, uh, a, a French series, a French TV series called Cinema de Notre Dame. Um, and they interviewed him like six times over his entire life. Um, and they put this together to create this like 50 minute tribute. Phenomenal. Uh, and then there's two of his documentaries. And I, you know, his, I think he was one of the greatest documentarians of the 20th century. His hmm. stuff is just unbelievable. Um, when they released Ice Without a Face, they put his, um, his first real major work, uh, which was Blood of the Beasts, which was about the slaughterhouses in Paris and is, is hard to watch, but is an amazing piece of, of, of cinema. Here they've got two of his works, uh, Hotel des Invalides, which is about the military museum in the center of Paris, uh, and uh, Le Grand Melier, which was his half-hour tribute to Georges Melier, who was a huge influence on his work, you know, the sure. godfather of effects work. And he actually got Georges Melier's son to play Georges Melier in the reenactment part. Uh, and it's brilliant. And I, I'd actually really like Criterion to just go, look, we're just going to put as many of the Franju documentaries as we can get our hands out and just put a huge box set of them because I would watch every single one. And so many of his documentaries are used as uh, in uh, documentary um, uh, classes uh, at universities and, and film schools because they're great. There's also two really good interviews on here. Um, uh, Jacques Champreau, who uh, has a kind of comedy role as a detective, but also was the grandson of the guy who originally came up with the character Judex and was the inspiration for them making the film in the first place. But even better is Francine Berger, uh, who plays the nanny and was a great character actress uh, of, of this era of French cinema, still working to this day. And she has tells great stories about working with Franju, some really great stories about working with um, uh, Edith Scob, where she just goes... She wasn't human. She was just was the nicest. You work with people who were nice. She wasn't even nice. She was beyond nice. She just felt like this like wonderful blithe spirit walking through your existence. <laughs> and she made you feel good about yourself just by being there. And she was like a, a flower in midwinter. She was just the nice. And, you know, the film with the disc with the film on it. Yeah, it's good. It's really interesting. I, I'm not. It's it's I guess Running for me it. it's because I've got it's such a background in in uh, superheroes and superhero yeah. films and like the whole history of them and read so much and had heard of this character but was not aware there was like even a sound film with him yeah and I found it really fascinating on that aspect and the ways in which it seems like it did in fact inform later filmmakers the way it informed stuff like Batman and things like that I mean there's some really memorable sequences in oh, here yeah. uh, and I like I said I really enjoyed it it moves. You're right. It moves too slow for its own good for a film like that at points. It pulls out the soundtrack when there should be more. But it was in many ways the first of its kind, too. Yeah. Oh, so. if you like superhero movies, if you like French art house movies of the, of the 60s, if you like documentaries, you know, there's so much to recommend this package. Uh, you know, this is one of, I think this is one of Criterion's stronger releases in a while. Yeah, Because absolutely. you get a real feel for why this needs to be a Criterion disc. Indeed. Well, let's uh, move on to more foreign film releases this week and talking specifically about another French film, French-Belgian, if you will. Oh, so Belgian. Ernest in Celestine. Celestine, which was uh, not not the the Celestine Chronicles, Uh, (laughs) uh, that was nominated for Best Animated Feature last year at um, 
the Academy Awards. And I always like to watch those in previous years since they've had the animated feature. All the foreign films that we didn't get yet by the time the <laughs> Academy put them up were ended up being great. Yeah. I mean, like, really great. Where afterwards you're like, okay, I might actually like this one better than the Pixar film that actually won. This is the one this year that I don't really feel that way about. No. <laughs> um, it's precious, sure. Nothing wrong with that. It feels kind of Paddington Bearish. Yeah, I mean, it's adapted from a, a series of, of Belgian kids' books about a, a mouse and a bear who become friends. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's basically the standard subtext about acceptance. And yeah. You know, basically, Celestine is this mouse who lives in an orphanage and. For some unknown reason, the, orphan, the the mouse city is beneath a bear city, and the bears are all terrified of the mice and think they should be exterminated, and the mice are all terrified of the bears and think they'll just try and eat them. And she comes across Ernest, uh, who's a you know affable failure. His father is a judge, but he wants to be a musician, and he keeps getting arrested for being a musician. Um, it's hand illustrated. I mean, it's it's really pretty to look at. It it, it is, but it's not one of those films that makes you go whoa yeah with the animation either it's actually very simple hand-drawn stuff and it is pretty i mean it's not really criticism it's a style of doing it but it's not the type of style that i usually find is appealing i mean i i like it i'm a big animation fan i i I didn't see anything that made me think this should have been an oscar nominee of they possibly had a slot to fill it just it's not radical it's not groundbreaking it's a good solid piece of kids animation with heart it teaches some good life lessons sure it is pretty it does remind you people that you can do a uh, a hand-drawn feature and still get an audience for it and there's some questionable ethics stuff in here too because like initially like uh Ernest, who's voiced in the american version which i watched because the american cast was so good i'm like i'm gonna watch the dub version because i love all these actors uh he's voiced by forrest forrest whitaker uh He's starving on the street. He's so hungry. He's woken up early from hibernation. Uh, he doesn't know what to do. And he befriends Celestine, pl- uh, played by uh, Mackenzie Foy, who's like, well, look down there through that window. There's a candy shop there. And that's totally – you could sneak down there and eat all that candy. So they become friends because of that. And there's this whole thing where they are just blatantly – repeatedly ripping off and stealing from uh this family that lives there with Nick Offerman playing the dad of it. And he's Nick totally... Nick was an angry bear. That's, he is. It's just like, did they even need to animate that? Right. It's, he's totally in the, you know, I mean, the, Ernest and Celestine are in the wrong. And by the end of the film, they have completely abandoned the fact that that was initially what they were supposed to be in trouble for in the first place. Like literally like the movie forgot that's what the charges were yeah, <laughs> and went to like, no, it's just about the fact that a bear and a mouse shouldn't be friends. Like, no, it's about grand theft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> poor house. It was poor family. He's like, all their stuff gets stolen. Yeah. Their constantly. story totally. I mean, their house is like practically destroyed by the end of the film and they did nothing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what? Uh, you've also got voices Lauren Bacall, Paul Giamatti, William H. Macy, Jeffrey Wright. It's a solid voice cast. Of- uh, Michael uh, uh, Sinter Nicholas, who uh, people will probably know from his work on uh, The Venture Brothers. Oh, yeah. Who does he play on The Venture Brothers? Uh, he's um, Hank. Oh, no kidding. No, no, sorry. He's um, Dean. He does the voice of Dean. I correct myself. He is uh, Dean Venture. I did not know and that. And he sounds exactly like Dean. He's not one of those actors who... Oh, and he's who has, Leonardo and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the 2000s as yeah. well. 
Oh no, he's he's done a lot of work. It's weird because Adventure Brothers is the one he's most well known for, and he just uh, pretty much does his own voice for that. Huh? Charming guy. Met him. Lovely. Interesting. There you go. Well, either way, this is you know I think it's a good film to show to little kids, but yeah. as an adult and someone who loves animation and somebody who's really anxious to all watch this, because like I said, previous nominations for this from foreign countries have been pretty much across the board fantastic. This one not so much. No. It's really aimed at very little kids, and even then. It felt like it kind of had some problems finishing its own story line of reasoning, you know? It's very Belgian. <laughs> yes, it's, it you is. Know, and I mean that in the nicest way, Belgian, but it, it's very kind of like... Except that probably drinking and... beer during it won't help. Mm, well, it can't hurt. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty enough, clever enough, but yeah, shallow and small. Yeah. You know, it's it, nice, but... Uh, it's and, not, nice is what you say about it. It's nice. Yeah. It's sweet. If you've got but, a six-year-old niece, she is going to, or, or nephew, they're going to demolish this. True. They're going to love it. It's going to be one of their favorite films. But, you know, you may not want to sit through with it five or ten times with them. True. Uh, this comes with a almost hour-long making of Erna Celest- and Celestine, which is pretty in-depth that looks through the adapting it from a book to the animation process. There's a feature-length animatic of the which whole thing. Which is just... You're doing the animation. Why do we need the animatic? I've never understood that. That's, no. I'm like, why? I never understand the animatic stuff. I'm like, I guess if you're really, really, really in the, right in the process of learning to be an animator, that's helpful. But or why is it on all spectacular storyboards? Yeah. Yeah, if, the, True. if you're really doing some If the storyboards really... are different enough that you really need to see, want to see all the original lines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, they just put out a, a big book of all the um, the storyboards from the first three Star Wars films. And there are, you know, there are shots there which you, which you know so incredibly well that it's like, oh, hang on, they made an interesting choice there and they changed something. Right. And not, you know, a design or, or a, a structural choice. They're putting, doing that's animatic? Yeah. I mean, or I something like this and I was like, ah, I don't see. Something like Atlantis the Lost Empire where you've got the actual. Like like drawings being done by what's his name from Hellboy? Uh, oh, Mike Mignoli. Yeah. yeah, Mike Mignoli. Where you're like, okay, I kind of want to see what the original artwork looked like for that. But most of those, you're like, eh. It's also got an interview with the director for 14 minutes. It's actually a sizable amount of extras, considering that it doesn't really need any of them. Yeah. So I don't know. This uh, is just kind of a. I'm not eh. sure why they were pitching this disc out because it doesn't need this stuff. But if we are talking about something for for kids that's animated that is really good, I'm going to go to one of the best movies I've seen this year, which is the Lego movie. My dog's favorite movie of the year. Yeah, so you said, I mean... This every- is the... This is... Well, but true. Um- <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, we all... Like, when we saw the commercials Lego movie, we were like, eh. And we heard the bits of the song, everything is awesome, and went, uh-oh, this is going to be irritating. But then in the context of the film, when you hear it, you are into it. You're like, everything is awesome! And my dog... My dog who normally completely ignores the television, as soon as the Everything is Awesome song comes on, she sits up. I mean, she's basically blind, so it's like she's not watching the film. But she was like, huh, what? And her ears are twitching, and I'm like, what? She loves that song. Phil and Lord, she was staring at the TV, which is which is always really weird. So yeah, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller are so talented that they've made a movie that will even appeal to your dog, even a bit appeal to an aging <laughs> blind dog. <laughs> right? Talk about universal appeal. I, I know <laughs> that's hysterical, really, because that's kind of their whole thing: is this universal appeal in a way you never could have seen coming. I mean, they've made Twenty One Jump Street and Twenty Two Jump Street, two movies that by no means should have even been made in the first place, <laughs> yet are really cool funny and awesome. They made. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs that was based on like a one-note children's book story nobody had heard of and made it into 
one of the best animated films to come out in years, just so wildly creative. And now the Lego movie, a bl- like thing, blatant branding stuff. You're like, oh, God, of course Lego was going to eventually make their own theatrical film, Yawn. Oh, wait, who's directing it? Phil Lord and Chris Miller? Shit, it might what? actually be good. And sure enough, it's not only good, it's so good, it's one of the best portrayals of Batman in recent yes. memory. <laughs> uh, the, also the Green Lantern. The idea here is you've got Morgan Freeman here as Vitruvius, who is a wizard who is trying to protect a super weapon called the Kragle from evil Lord business. It's funny. Did you watch Fox News going off on this movie and how much they hated oh, it? Oh, they hated it. Yeah, because they're like, what's wrong with being the head of a corporation? It's like, uh, I think you just answered your own question, Fox business. Bye. <laughs> uh, he fails, but prophecies that a person called the special will find the piece of resistance capable of stopping the Kragle. So move on to years later and you see a regular kind of schmucky construction worker named Emmett Brick. Brickowski, get it? Because he's a Lego. He's from Bricksburg. Uh, I guess his ancestors must have helped build it at some point. I don't <laughs> know. Uh, who meets a woman named Wildstyle who's searching for something after hours at his construction play, uh, site. When he investigates, he falls in a hole and finds the piece of resistance. The, the piece of resistance! He touches it and it basically gets glued to him. He has this huge hallucinatory sequence, which is awesome, and wakes up with it attached to his back in the... In, uh, the custody of the brilliantly played bad cop. Yes. The bad cop and good cop are the same person, uh, both voiced by Liam Neeson, uh, who just turns his head around and he becomes either bad cop or good cop, who is sort of the, the head lieutenant, right-hand man, number one for the evil lord business. And he finds that business wants to freeze the world with a Kragle, which is a basically a tube of crazy glue. Yeah. Uh, so he has to join up with a team of, of rebels and find out how they're supposed to use the piece of resistance to stop him. And it's the, it's a very goofy, relatively simplistic kids plot that is livened well, you know up. What it, by, like, can I, can we point out what plot it is? Go, it's the matrix. Sure. Sure. This it, is the plot of the matrix done with Lego and you don't have to sit through the matrix for uh, uh, reloaded or revolutions. It's true. Uh, <laughs> and there's, it's funny, like, the reveal portion in this, when it's like the movie steps back away from the animation in a brief live action sequence, is so, wow, I genuinely did not see that coming. Yeah. That's the moment you realize you're watching The Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh! Well, no, uh, frankly, uh, the, the moment where Wildstyle turns up, and, and I and just you go, realize she's Trinity. She's Trinity, yeah. yeah. She even looks like Trinity. Yeah. Um, and yeah, obviously Vitruvius is is uh, Morpheus and and what have you. But it's played for nonstop laughs. Yeah. Such a cleverly written script in here. Uh, just a whole, just a great cast of actors in here. Uh, Will Ferrell plays Lord Business, the villain. Chris Pratt, who has gone from the doofy guy on Parks and Recreation that was just part of the ensemble cast we liked to being like a superstar yeah. or at least a planned superstar. I'm not sure when that happened, but it's seeming it's, it's happening pretty smoothly. Dude started working out and they're like, Oh wow, you look good with muscles. All right, let's move. Uh, Elizabeth Banks is wild style. Elizabeth Wh- Banks has a good movie this week. <laughs> yes, no, thank no. God. Yeah. Um, Will Arnett playing Batman. And I believe it's not the only time he voiced Batman. If I'm not mistaken, I want to no, say he I, did it once, once before. I'm pretty sure he's done it before. Uh, but either way. Yeah. Cause they, you know, it's DC Comics is now owned by Disney or uh, Warner Brothers, and so they own Batman, so they're able to put him and a few other superheroes in here. And second time that also uh, second time that Elizabeth Banks uh, has appeared with a member of the community cast this week. Indeed, ah. yeah, 
Because um, uh, Alison Brie turns up in this. Nick Offerman plays Metalbeard, a pirate. Uh, a Alison Brie, as you said, Princess Uni Kitty, <laughs> a unicorn kitten hybrid that will have you go, aww. Charlie Day is a the one of my favorite characters in here. He's Benny, a 1980-something space guy. <laughs> Whose helmet got slightly cracked because he's an old piece. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just kind of charming. Just, like, all he wants to do is build spaceships. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what he was designed Space to do. Spaceship! Uh, Liam Neeson, like I said, bad cop, good cop. Morgan Freeman is Vitruvius. Channing Tatum plays Superman. Uh, Jonah Hill is Green Lantern. Kobe Smulders is Wonder Woman, which she very well might end up playing at some point in the future of her career. You never know. Um, And various other, like, I don't want to spoil for you the cameos, but this one has, like, a lot of, like, really clever cameos from familiar people playing their roles they they made famous that are just like absolute geek squeeing heaven yeah. when they happen in this film. I just I just don't want to ruin it for you. It's too much fun to let it happen naturally. And it does have some great Green Lantern jokes. Green Lantern in this is actually actually takes the place normally reserved for Aquaman, but I think they yeah. understood that not enough people know who Aquaman is. Um, <laughs> not yet. Yeah, this is kind of like a more kid friendly version of Robot Chicken in a lot of ways yeah. because it's just like constant gags. Just throw it at the wall, see if it sticks, and it pretty much uniformly sticks. It does. It's vis- uh, this is kind of the the culmination of the visual style that. Lego has been working up to for years through you know, the Lego Star Wars games, the animated specials they've done. They've really they, this feels like they had the game plan and they got there. So I think if you'd have been dropped in like the visual style they go for, which really does feel like animated Lego, yeah, would be a bit, a bit of a leap for a lot of people. But they've kind of weaned us over so we know what's coming, and it's so funny. Just systematically laugh after laugh after laugh. Oh, yeah. Because I was initially thinking, a Lego movie does not need to be an hour 45. By the end of it, I was like, can I have another, another I'll take another minutes? No, I'll take another 20 minutes at that point. And it, has and it goes of, on into the credits, of course. As... And one of the best extras. Oh, okay. Now, <laughs> let me just, uh, we'll, we'll build to that. Yeah. But first off, the audio commentary with uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, with Chris Pratt, Will Arnett, Charlie Day, and Alison Brie. Just all of them cracking jokes during the whole thing. Worth listening to in and of itself. Uh, there's a dream job. Meet the Lego builders for 13 minutes, which is... Uh, th- this is like in the Everything is Awesome edition, uh, basically, if you get that one. Which is uh, Lego group employees and the movie's designers are introduced. They talk about how you know how it is to work at Lego, basically. There's bringing Lego to life, which is a kid-friendly behind-the-scenes featurette narrated by Chris Pratt. Uh, there's stories from the story team, which is just a look through the development. There's See It, Build It, which is some mini featurettes for the kids uh, speak, uh, that really instructions how to build some of the models from the movie, stuff like that. The Everything is Awesome sing-along, because you've got to have a sing-along on every animated film. Um, yeah, because you're not already want to shoot your own children in the just so you can add to that there's uh four minutes of fan-made films introduced by chris pratt where they got some people who did a challenge to make their own little lego movies uh a first animation test and then uh it's about three minutes of deleted scenes in the storyboard uh uh, level production a bunch of very in character intentionally made blooper reel which is funny as well as the same type of thing with some additional promotion content and now we get to the main stuff to come to and I'm going to go in descending order to like from the worst to the best although all three are great first you have Enter the Ninjago which is the idea that the ninja Lego characters like what if we made this remade this whole movie so it was actually all about Legos or about uh, wait it is about Legos about ninjas 
And it's kind of funny. It's cute. Better than that is Michelangelo and Lincoln History Cops, History Cops. which is done like a a fake trailer from Grindhouse almost, you know, the way it's filmed. And it's 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 pretty funny, you know. They're they're playing on every cliche of the buddy cop movie, but where it's, you know, the artists Michelangelo and the president Lincoln. The real highlight here is Batman's a true artist, which is only one minute long, and it's a cheap stop motion music video of Batman saying, you know, all is darkness, all is darkness, my parents are dead, my parents are dead. It's so fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. It looks like it was made by whoever it is that does the uh, the bumpers um, for uh, Boomerang. <laughs> it has that same kind of like high octane, just like completely crazy. We're going to play with the real figures for two minutes thing, and it's awesome. And you're like, just just I, I could do with another six hours of that. Yeah. This this is this may be the most fun version of Batman since uh, Animated Adventures. Yeah. 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 I absolutely agree. It's um. You're just going to have a good time with it. Yeah. That's all I can say. And the extras, if you've already seen the theater, the extras are well worth picking up the whole thing for. And then it actually has a nice message at the end. Unlike Ernest and Celestine, which kind of whacks you over the head with the message, this actually goes, hey, let's talk about what we do, like what adults do with toys for a moment. Yeah. This is actually, because I, you know, I, I know I get regular flack for this. Uh, I don't like Toy Story 3 because I think it's it's clumsy in how it talks about how adults interact with toys. This does something really, really clever in the third act and actually has heart and imagination. And it absolutely had me go, oh. Yeah. Yeah, you get a little verklempt. It's yeah. true. It, it really works. Uh, and should you know, be, should be a three-hour advert. The unexpected yes. idea of like exploring the the I always like the 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 villain that turns out to have just be a misunderstood idea, and this is somewhat in a meta way plays with that. Oh, and also kudos to Lego for allowing uh, Pratt and Lord to uh, uh, to take some like loving pot shots at some of their lines that weren't successful. Yeah, because yeah. there is a lot of like we're in we're in our Western stuff, and then we're now our Viking and our pirate stuff. So they like they go, we have our our themed line, but then there's a bit where they go, yeah, and those are places we just don't go anymore. And I had to look <laughs> them up and went, oh, I'd forgotten about those. Those no, those didn't work, did they? Yeah. They were a nice try. Well, Lego's doing fine, so no, they're not hurting. <laughs> they're not hurting. Well, let's talk about some. Something that uh, does fit a brand but does not come off anywhere near as well, and that is 300. Well, let's just call it for what it is. It's 302, <laughs> labeled 300 Rise of an Empire, because apparently it's just not cool to say, to give something a number anymore. And, and technically, the title's wrong as well. Uh huh. Because this is about the rise, you know, basically takes this takes place. Before, during, and after 300. Yeah, it's parallel film. Which was about you know creating the Greek Republic, which was not an empire. So it's kind of wrong. And I kind of got annoyed by it. Rise that. of a Republic just did not have the same sound. Yeah. It sounds like a Star Wars title. It does. Indeed. Um, and Historians. <laughs> this is, is not Zack Snyder, despite the fact that he, he did, in fact, co-write the screenplay and uh, he produced it. They got a guy named Gnome Murrow, who I know next to nothing about. Some probably who? some guy who's probably worked on technical aspects of the first film, uh, which, God, how long ago was it the original came first? Oh, 2007. Yeah. So seven years later doing this film, uh, you know, and too long because, let's face it, there's a TV show of 300 now. It's called Spartacus. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's so much of this style of thing that now it's kind of laughable to watch it. Like, you're like, okay, when it first came out, 300, I'm just going to say 300 isn't a very good movie as a movie. But 
at the time, it was kind of groundbreaking for the way it looked. It was like, okay, full mad respect for giving us something nothing else looked like that. And you know? it was before, you know, Frank Miller, who wrote the original graphic novel, before we all realized that he was kind of a horrible, distasteful racist. True. Yeah. Very true. So that was nicer. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Simple days. And ultimately, as a film, I don't think this is really much... It's not. It's about at the same level as the original 300. Hell, I might even like this a little better script-wise than the original 300 because of the addition of a interesting female character. Yes. Uh, Eva Green, who plays basically the, the main villainous of this film, who is mesmerizing as always to watch. She's a really intense-looking woman, and she's pretty intense-looking as this as well. But yeah, you're right. This is the side story that has more to do about the other battle that was going on while the 300 were going up the hill and fighting directly with the, the land armies. There was also a sea battle going on, which was much bigger. Yeah. This is that sea battle. And it's... I think the weird thing is that part of what really made people remember 300 was, A, it was visually a breakthrough movie, but B, it had such a level of utter craziness about some of the stuff. And like everybody was dis- deformed or distorted or overly chiseled, and they mm. don't go that far this time. There aren't the weird, monstrous figures. There's a lot of guys on, on decks of boats. <laughs> And the, the sea battles, which are hard to do. Doing sea battles is, is one of the toughest things yeah. to carry off on film. This actually does it and makes you go, oh, I understand how the battle is working. With with the exception of one sequence with the horse, where yeah. you go, I'm sorry, the physics just don't work anything even close to that, and even a three-year-old is going to know that watching this sequence. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... It is what it is. It's it's a sequel. It's a lot gorier than the first one. Yes, it and is. Which is kind of distracting because there's so much... It was shot in 3D. And there's so much blood being thrown at the lens that by the end of the first battle, you're like, yeah, I don't need that. I've we already, know. Yeah, I've we, already got, got it. a blood fatigue. Um, a CG blood fatigue. <laughs> and Sullivan Stapleton as uh, Themistocles... Who's he's, the, he's our he's our hero for this one. He's no Gerard Butler, you know. He, well, such as it is to be Gerard Butler. Well, but you know, at least in the original one, Gerard Butler was like, "Okay, where's the scenery? Because I need to do some chewing." True. So Whereas I'm is trying to pulling give, it back to yeah. feel to make him feel more like a real character, uh, and but nothing else in the movie feels that way. Yeah. So it doesn't really if he, he feels very out of place to choose that kind of performance. Yeah, I mean I I think he probably just didn't get the memo. But then Themistocles <laughs> is is not supposed to be a mad ravening barbarian king like sure. uh, 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 uh like Butler's come uh, character in the first film. And they try to bring Lena Headley back as well to Hedy, sorry. Headley, Headley. Hedy. <laughs> sorry, I got a Hedy Lamar. Blazing blazing saddles of it. Um uh she was like a small role in the original one and they try and expand it here. But I was kind of like, this just feels sandwiched in for no particular reason. Um, it's the, uh, Thermostocles, Thermostocles story. And every time they try and tell little bits of story from the, the previous one, like here's the stuff you didn't see. I'm like, okay, you know what? This isn't that movie. Let's just, you know, don't throw me the deleted scenes from another movie in here. Just tell the story that's currently going on. Yeah. We, we know what's happening over there with the giant elephants and shit. It's, (laughs) it's, you know, epic battle enough. Um, yeah, as you said, the real selling point is Eva Green as uh, Artemisia. Um, uh, 
chief general of the uh, of an admiral of the Persian fleet. Uh, she gets to Gerard Butler this one up. She just gets to froth yeah. and is great and big and over the top. She's and glorious. Think, oh yeah, she knows what this film is, which is oh, totally. big and nuts. Um, I have a funny feeling that one day we will see a 300 and 300 uh, Rise of an Empire supercut. I have a funny feeling that that'll, that will no, merge with just day. her scenes. <laughs> uh, well, but no, just putting the two films together and going, oh. okay, they are actually, which could actually boost this up because yeah, it has some flat moments. Totally. Is, considering how bonkers it is visually. Yeah. There's no, there's kind of no excuse. And there's very few moments where there's an image as kind of big and memorable as like the, the tree of woe in the first one. Sure. It's not, it, it's, it's, it's funny going, well, Zack Snyder is a better director than somebody. Um, <laughs> well, you know, at the same time, I, res- I respected the fact that this one did pull it back a little because I don't feel like you can do the level of exaggeration, uh, hyper- uh, hyperbole violence that the first one did anymore. No. I don't feel like you can do that. And this one is smart enough to pull it, restrain that a bit, make it feel a little bit more down to earth while still retaining largely the style of the first one. I, like I said, I actually like this one a little better than the first one now yeah. while still giving the first one the respect it deserves for being the first movie to do what it was doing. I just think as a movie, I actually like this one a little bit better. And that's entirely Eva Green, who is so wonderful as the wronged woman who has taken her her being wronged and it's turned like as an ember in her soul and let it flare up as a woman to being like, you know, I mean, she's dark helmet. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had fun with this on the whole. It's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's an entertaining way to sp- enough way to spend an afternoon. And if you like the first 300 and you like Spartacus, don't let people tell you this is just completely awful because it's not. it's not. It's not at all. It's worth seeing if you like that kind of thing. If you already know you don't like the, that kind of thing, you ain't going to like this either. <laughs> uh, and this has got a 30-minute behind-the-scenes um, divided up into four featurettes, uh, a thing, Real Leaders and Legends, which is 22 minutes, which takes a look at the film's adaptation of history them saying sort of scene by scene here's the difference between what actually happened in history and it's what it's basically a couple of historians laughing maniacally for 20 minutes and trying to be very nice but go no this is just not exactly not at all. uh 12 minutes of woman warriors uh which is taking a look at even green and lena headley's characters specifically 11 minutes of savage warships which is specifically about the effects and how they did the naval battles in here and how that, you know, once again, versus the actual historical thing. And five minutes of the basically just the, the actors doing physical training for their roles called Becoming a Warrior. Like I said, overall, not terrible is what it is. You, you may absolutely, this may absolutely not be your type of thing. It might be absolute garbage in, in your world. And in your world, you're right, it is. <laughs> but for me, mildly entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're getting towards the end here, and let's talk Aww. about one of my favorite things that came out this this uh, week. And I, you guys know what a big fan I am of Star Trek, all things Star Trek, and oh, yeah. Star Trek Next Generation still being my favorite. And the best seasons were really season three and season six. We've already talked about season three that had like uh, the, the Yesterday's Enterprise and wonderful episodes like that. Six is really the season where it fully makes the transition over to being its own show, yeah. where it has cast off the baggage of, of the original series completely. Where it's like, we don't want to be that show. We're not that show. Everyone is now familiar with these characters. They like these characters. Let's give them all a chance to actually act. <laughs> 
And it is like, I mean, this started towards the end of the fifth season, like about second half of the fifth season is much better than the first half of it, with the exception of Time's Arrow, which is one of the worst two-parters in the whole history of yeah, this series. Yeah, I'm amazed find Joan Collins and set Chicago on fire with it. Even though the first half of Time's Arrow from season five is actually funny and kind of fun, the second half that's the beginning of season six is pretty terrible <laughs> with the, the, the search for Data's head in the Old West, and it does not work, partially because of the actor who's never not on screen playing Mark Twain. But the only really bad things about season six are that episode and then the very final cutoff episode, the beginning of the two-parter for the next one, which isn't even terrible. It's just a little predictable. I'm um, in another data-centric episode you're like okay make it about somebody else but the rest of this season season six is just filled with wonderful stuff and wonderful chances for these actors to really perform um even barclay gets a really good episode in realm of fear where he's got transporter fear and it turns out there actually is something diabolical inside the transporter world that only he can see that's pretty cool um there's uh, they bring back uh, Mr. Scott from the original episode here uh, is- series, and they do it in a way that is an appropriate final. Like it is the final passing of the torch from the original to saying, "Now this is how things are done. We always will love and respect what you did, but this is how it is now." And goodbye. And it is one of my favorite Trek episodes ever. I love relics. It's yeah. it's so it, it's the best Geordie episode by far. Oh yeah, it's and really it's, good. It's two engineers talking about engineering stuff and. An old man realizing that the world has completely passed him by and the cosmos has gone on without him. But is he's you know the the fact that James Doohan brings this kind of gravitas and weight of going, yeah, this was always going to happen to me. I was always going to be bypassed by by the world and still yet have that spark of adventure about it. Plus a giant Dyson sphere, which I totally love that sci-fi concept. You completely. don't get enough Dyson. Spheres. Big Ring World fan, so I was like, oh, Dyson sphere, awesome. Uh, the the Q episode is great, bringing in Olivia Diabo as a young and very sexy lady as a woman who discovers she's a Q and is basically being told by Q proper, you either decide to become a Q or we're going to assassinate you. Yeah. Uh, there's an episode where the transporter turns Picard, Keiko, Roe, and Guinan into children. <laughs> oh, which is <laughs> which, which is not, a, which should make you want to uh, yeah. pick up your gun. But it, but it works. actually hugely fun because the kids really pull it off. Um, a Fistful of Datas, where, which is one of the funniest episodes in this whole thing, where uh, Worf and his kid are playing classic Western, spaghetti Western in the holodeck, and they get locked in there, as you do. I'm surprised anybody ever goes in the holodeck except Barkley, and we know why he does. Um, and every character ends up turning into Data, even the madam at the whorehouse. And it's very funny stuff. It really works. And it was actually directed by Patrick Stewart. It was the first episode he directed, I believe. Um... Uh, Chain of Command is the real gem in here, part one and two, which they have indeed re- released as a separate Blu-ray that you can get just with it interrupted with a whole unique set of extras uh, endemic just to that release version, or you can just get it inside here. It's odd that it's the first one of these separately released two-parters that wasn't the season ender, season beginner, because yeah. this is better than either either side <laughs> of the season. Well, beginner. I think they... It- this would have been bad to, to split because I yeah. think you really need to be able to watch. Yeah, you know, I think put television audiences through that because this is an emotionally brutal story. Oh, it's yeah, and it's Picard. It's the uh, Patrick Stewart's finest acting moment on this all, whole show, with the exception possibly of All Good Things, the final episode, where he is sent on a covert mission uh, into Cardassian territory as 
is captured and tortured by David Warner as a Cardassian, yep. which borrows heavily from both the film version of 1984 and a very little seen film that's one of my favorite movies uh, with Alan Rickman and Madeline Stowe called Closet Land, which it lifts whole scenes from. But you know what? No one had seen it, so fuck it. <laughs> well, now, because they'll go, oh, if it's anything like Chain, uh, Chain of Command, I really want to see this. Um, Chain of Command is wonderful. It's if you ever see somebody go, there are four lights! That's from this. Uh, you bring, they finally bring back Professor Moriarty in a very clever sort of con episode, if you will. Uh, even Deanna gets a good episode for crazy. Hell, there's an episode in here where, um, Beverly Crusher roundhouse kicks a dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously? Uh, Tapestry, which is well regarded as one of the best episodes, uh, dramatic episodes of the show ever, where, uh, Picard dies and Q says, look, I'm going to give you another chance, but it will mean you have to change your past. So he goes back to his past and changes his wild, adventuresome youth to like, you know, like I don't want, I mean, I was irresponsible. I regret that time. Uh, and it leads to his life being completely mundane and pointless by not being that guy when he was younger. It's just a wonderful, wonderful episode. Uh, there's a lead in to Deep Space Nine, which also came out at the same time as this season. So they wanted to get people, hey, check out this other Star Trek show we've got right and now. And also presages the fact that Worf ends up on DS9. Yes. Uh, 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 yeah, and, uh, a great but, Worf two-parter about the whole Klingon history. One, and of, the best, one of the best Klingon stories. Um, there's a there's a uh, Die Hard episode with Picard as in the John McClane role. Which is really good. Yeah, which is really, really good. <laughs> really fun. Oh, he kills motherfuckers. <laughs> I mean, they try and play it off like, well, he thought he might survive. Like, no, he's killing people. Uh yeah, there's, there's a lot, almost every episode in here is really, really good. Uh, even the, the frame of mind, which is Riker finally gets a chance to act. And it's a key episode about like, is all this real? Have you been dreaming everything that's happened up to you now? I mean, it's just, you can't honestly believe you're the captain of a starship that has been copied by multiple genre shows since. I mean, yeah. it was the archetype episode of this storyline, uh, which I still think Buffy the Vampire Slayer did the best one ever on it because it ended with a sort of, you know what, this might all be fiction, but fuck it, I'm just going to go with it. It's more fun than that reality. <laughs> uh, oh, and also, also the first premise of, of Thomas Riker in... Uh, Thomas Riker, yeah. The, uh, the, in, the, the, the transporter clone of Will Riker. Which which raises it, which which is like it's the the perpetual question of like well what happens if you just do a transporter twice um, and it actually finally has a plotline that goes oh yeah we're going to resolve this unfortunately they never really dealt with Thomas as well as he deserved with no. after this but this is such a good well, they brought it they wanted to tie him into what was going on at Voyager at one point and have him be part of the what was the name of the the terrorists uh, the Bajoran oh the Maquis Maquis like and it was like eh, I have a hard time believing that even a you know even though he's not Will Riker anymore he was I have a hard time believing that guy would ever become a member of the Maquis but whatever this season does everything that's right that can be right. There's a great time travel type episode. There's every actor gets a chance to really stretch and does a good job. There's a Borg episode with a Stephen Hawking appearance in it. <laughs> I mean, great, great stuff. I mean, the worst thing I can say about this really is that they're kind of running out of bonus features to do at this point. Yeah. They're like, okay, we've kind of covered 
about as much as I can think of to add. And it's got the usual archival mission logs, uh, little, you know, look at their favorite episode type things. Um, the real thing that they build towards here, uh, everyone has like, oh, this is the big thing we're doing. And here it's called Beyond the Five-Year Mission, where it's kind of taking a look at how the show was evolving at this point and how it ended up evolving into other shows. Like the first one on here is basically just uh, well, here's how Star Trek turned into Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, and then it just, you know, I mean, it's one of those, like, we're getting towards the end. Another fun gag reel, but ultimately, you're not here for the, if you're still buying these, you're not doing it just for the bonus features. You're doing it because you fucking love Star Trek The Next Generation and these beautifully fixed up Blu-ray oh, versions. This has to be the best restoration of a series that I can think of because they have gone in and said, okay, you know what? Some of these effects look perfectly good on television at the time. We can't just fix them now. We have to go back and redo them, but redo them precisely yeah. from what they were, but just to work on higher resolution. Yep. Like, I mean, there are some that are fixed up to the point where they're like, we can make this better than it was. Yeah. I mean, they're clearly like, this did not look anywhere near as cool as that in the original, but they never make it feel like anachronistic at all yeah. with everything else that's going on. It feels very natural. So, Yeah. Love this stuff. In fact, I'm split between this is the pick of the week or uh, uh, the Lego movie because yeah. both of them really just sent the hair on the back of my neck up, you know, like of how great they are. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm going to let Brian Salisbury actually decide in the end which one he wants to put up. <laughs> so, but we have moved to the part of the show that uh, you guys love the most. It's when we do our giveaway. And we actually have two giveaways this week for Ooh, you. Fancy. And let's start with the first one, which I know is a movie that you loved the crap out of. Uh, so there's no oh, holy hell. Yes. There's no crap left in Joe because Richard has loved all the crap I right have out of it. Squeezed it out of that. This is the latest David Gordon Green film starring Nicolas Cage in a role that seemed to have been written for Matthew McConaughey. But what are you going to do? He yeah. can only be in one place at once. He's not Will Riker. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a Southern Gothic film with also featuring Ty Sheridan, who was in Mud, I believe, yep. uh, who's now a little more grown up, but still delivering just phenomenal performances. And it really is a great movie. Why don't you, you talk about this? Well, um, Nicolas Cage plays this guy, Joe, who's next con, kind of like, he's very depressed. He's got a bit of a business that his job is to uh, poison trees so they can be cut down. So this kind of, this, he's, he's still living on this kind of questionous, questionable, nebulous edge of the law. You know, is his job really legitimate in the first place? Uh, he has a, a work crew which is all, uh, you know, all, all black guys who you, you think, well, hang on, he's hiring these guys because they're cheap and they're mostly off the books. He pays them all in cash. So there's a real feeling of like a bunch of people who are like, this is them hanging on to the last moment of their lives. Uh, and Joe's really kind of saving them. And then he gets this 15-year-old kid with an incredibly abusive parent, uh, father wanders into his life. Joe's got old enemies who are out to get him for undisclosed reasons. He doesn't know how to in, how to interact with the cops. This is a guy who is just hanging on at the edge of, of life and has so many people hanging on to him that he can't let go, but he doesn't really care enough. And it's about Joe kind of coming into himself and does he really want to be a father figure to this kid? Does he have any choice? Cage is phenomenal. This is this is his best single performance since, in a long time. I'm going to say Leaving Las Vegas. Okay, I think it's as good as Leaving Las Vegas. I think he should have been nominated for an Oscar because I think it's phenomenal. This is David Gordon Green's best film. This is David Gordon Green taking that kind of improvised naturalism that he does so well and his his grasp of kind of 
really tiny, like beyond small town Texas, but these places that barely even exist. And if mm. you're there, you ain't getting out because you would have got out already. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, if you, yeah, if you're not, if you're Nicholas Cage's age and you're still living there, you're going to be living there till you die. And, and dying but, is not going to take you long. I, and it's I always just, tell people if you want to leave your small town and you're young, get out before you're 25. Because yeah, if you're still it. there at 25, you ain't leaving. No, you're you're you've already missed your window. Yeah. Sorry. And it's this is just phenomenal filmmaking. Uh, everything about this really works. Uh, a lot of the cast are don't seem to have any acting experience, but. David Gordon Green brings something beautiful out of them. There's some great, great sequences where these guys are just arguing or explaining to the central characters, and it's about you know hardworking blue collar folks who just don't have any chances left. And Cage gets it. Well, that's the thing is that this is the kind of role with a lesser director. Cage would have ruined this great script because Cage has a tendency to want to go full retard, if you will. <laughs> you know, like this is a character described like how has. He's filled with a simmering violence inside him and anger that he has learned largely to tamp down, but it's still pretty often that every once in a while he loses it and destroys something or beats the crap out of someone. And, you know, the town police is kind of like, look, we know Joe is a nice guy, but he's kind of a loose cannon, too. you got to keep an eye on him. It's the kind of role a lesser director would have said, okay, when, you you know, I want to see you get the crazy Nicolas Cage eyes. Cage never goes there. He no. plays a convincing picture of a guy like this. It's kind of like a, a, a redneck punch drunk love. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I just, there's nothing to not recommend this film, honestly. This is just a, a superb piece of... A uh, solid little southern gothic... I, I think it's because it's been McConaughey's year in so yeah. many ways that people, you know, he's just had so many great performances. I think this got a little bit overshadowed. Uh, but this is as good as Mud. It is as as good as anything McConaughey's doing at the moment. I think people, are, you know, it, it, it's sad it's not been allowed to rehabilitate Cage a little bit more sure. than it has. But this is him going. You know what? I really can get my shit back together, and hopefully he's going to get more parts like this because I think he's a he's a phenomenal actor, and I, I really want to see. More I do parts too. Like he just for not even for some reason the guy owes the IRS a bundle of money, but was willing to take any paycheck that was offered him. Bangkok dangerous. Yeah, you know you could list. you know have a drinking game with how many you could list, which is like fifty percent of his career at least is crappy, like. Films that were made for Nicolas Cage to do his crazy-eyed thing. And yeah, I'm not, I, I, having seen this now, I'm more more than ever, I want to see Frozen Ground, which is the... Um, it's all right. Yeah. I wasn't crazy about yeah, it. Yeah, I really want to see that just because yeah. I'm feeling like he's back on a roll at the moment. He's, he's trying it. to take more serious roles now, yeah. and good for him. I mean, some of his crazy roles are fun, like Face Off, for instance. Oh, wow, yeah. that's fun. And you know, nobody else could have done that either. No, and Vampire's Kiss, so good, but... Yeah, we're tired of the, like, just there to make a buck films that were coming out, and this is not one of those. Sure now, as hell. Also comes with a commentary by director David Gordon Green, the composer David Wingo, and actor Brian D. Mays, a 11-minute making of Joe, which is pretty standard EPK, uh, the long gravel drive, the origins of Joe, about 16-minute, uh, more interesting look, uh, talking about the adaptive process by the screenwriter to translate the the novel by Larry Moore to the screen and two deleted scenes. And we are giving away two copies of this on Blu-ray. Uh, now here's what you need to do. If you want to win this first, make sure you're following at one of us net on Twitter. Second, you're going to tweet at us with your answer of 
What's the craziest line for Nicolas Cage to say in a movie that he hasn't said yet? Ooh, good one. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, just picturing crazy-eyed Nicolas Cage, what would he say? Because uh, we want to laugh and try and imagine it. Um, and then add hashtag Joe giveaway. And we will pick our two favorite answers, and we will contact you versus Twitter. This is open to U.S. residents only, but we will, and then we'll send you uh, Blu-ray copies of Joe. So, good on you. Yay! <laughs> now, the other thing we're giving away this week is a DVD copy of Season 1 of The Bridge. Now, this is one of these shows that I had heard a lot about, I'd seen a lot of raving about online. I watched the first episode and went, wow, that was really intense. And it just got lost in the shuffle after that yeah. of other stuff to watch. And that's a shame because I know a lot of other people who did the same thing who just kind of fell off after maybe two or three episodes going, it's really good, but there's so much other good stuff. I had no idea this was going to turn into seven, yeah. which it kind of <laughs> does in a good way. I mean, it's not the feeling like cinematically, it's not that feeling and not even so much in the tone, but still very dark with a killer who's devious and brilliant and tied in knows everything that's going on and has set up an elaborate tableau that the actors, the characters don't even realize they've been moving around like his chess pawns the entire time. Really, really well-made st show starring uh, German actress, Diane Kruger, who is an odd role. She is Detective Sonia Cross, a member of the El, El Paso Police Department, who has as severe Asperger's Syndrome. Yeah. Like, she just doesn't know how to relate to people. And it's a small-town police station, and kind of her father figure is the lieutenant played by Ted Levine. Oddly enough, in a show about a serial killer, you've got Jamie Gum himself playing, <laughs> you know, playing the, you know, because you're, the whole time I'm like, oh, I hope they're not going to make the killer him, because it's just too obvious. And spoiler, it's not. But there's a ton of characters in here, so it's not that surprising Can that it's play not. The grumpy, the, the grumpy detective dealing with somebody with, with uh, social interaction issues in uh, Monk as well. Did he? I never watched Monk. So. Uh, yeah, I think he played the he, he played a very like a, a comedy version of the same role in Monk. Fair enough. Yeah, because this is definitely not comedy, although it does have funny moments. Now, Diane Kruger's character, Sonia Cross, gets teamed up with a homicide detective for the state police of Mexico by, by Damian Bashir, who is in incredible in this. And because there's a body found on the bridge between Mexico and El Paso, Texas, that is cut in half right at the bridge point, where one is on one side and the other is the other. To make it even weirder, it turns out that they're two different bodies. Yes. <laughs> one is a Texas judge, and one is a young woman from Mexico who had been found murdered. Um, and everything just gets more and more complicated as this goes along with the plot. They're like they, the detectives just trying to figure out what the fuck is going on here. There's, of course, that point in there where they think they have the killer, but then it turns out that he's just a patsy. Stuff like that. And there's also a lot of uh, red herring characters in here that will eventually that, – that really are mainly here so that in the second season, the story ends up being much more about them. Which kind of is irritating when you get to the end. You're like, we spent a lot of time on those characters just kind of pussyfooting around just for something that has no relevance to this first season at all. Well, it's a good thing <laughs> they, they, they got picked up for a second season, really, yeah, isn't I, it? Exactly. It was very disappointing. Uh, you've also got Annabeth Gish. You guys who actually liked the last couple seasons of The Exophile should remember her as the Scully replacement, uh, who's a wealthy widow whose hus uh, rancher husband dies, uh, and she finds out that he was 
guarding a tunnel to Mexico on their property, and now she's reluctantly getting involved with the Mexican gangs and the cartels because they want to keep the tunnel opening, whether she likes it or not. Um, there's Thomas Wright, who's wonderful in here, as this really creepy guy, kind of a lone wolf character, who is trying to help woman who have been being abused or beaten up or anything. He's, he tries to help them escape, and he generally sends them to a ranch run by a moderately creepy guy, but they never try and... It's creepy, but they always try and say, no, no, he's on the up and up. Played by John Grease, mm -hmm. who's always wonderful. Um, Matthew Lillard, shockingly, has an acting role here yeah. as uh, El Paso Times reporter, who has a serious amount of... of of coke and alcohol abuse, so it's kind of killing his whole career. And a hang lot. On, hang more... on, a, a reporter that could afford coke. Yeah, well, really. Well, apparently he had a really rich friend at one point. Oh, that it ties funny. into the plot at some that point. There's a lot more characters beside that. I don't want to get too much into it. I'll just say that the leads on here are so wonderful. The mystery is really involving. It's one of those shows that takes a couple episodes to really sink in. It wasn't until episode four or five that I went, "Oh, I see what the show is trying to do," and I wasn't sure at first. At first, I'm like, okay, it's another The Killing. You know, it's going to be a whole fucking season or maybe even three or four about one goddamn murder. Yeah. And it's not because it gets to the point quickly in here where people just start dropping like flies. Yeah. So you're like, oh, okay, this is much better. Really, really recommend this. Um, just had so much fun with it. And we are giving away one copy on DVD. Once again, same way. Uh, make sure you follow us at one of us net on Twitter. Uh, and I want you to, geez, I don't know what the challenge for this one should be, what they should tweet us. Name your favorite bridge. Your favorite bridge? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that confounded bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Name your favorite bridge and why. Yeah, your favorite bridge. Really? Favorite bridge and why? Bridges are awesome. Are okay, they? That's no. a very British thing. Yeah. That was like you with the train the other night. Boop, boop. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, is this really happening right yes. now? <laughs> Um, if you, okay, if your body had to be found across the border between two countries, which ones and why? So they don't necessarily have to be real, real life connected countries. Yeah, any two countries. Sure, why not? Okay, <laughs> this is care. why you don't let me do the question. This is exactly why. But fuck it, if your body had to be found on a bridge, dead between two countries. Which countries would they be, and what was your story? And you got to do it in 140 characters, so good yep. luck. <laughs> uh, we will pick the one winner there. Hashtag it, the bridge giveaway, or just bridge giveaway will be fine, bridge actually. Giveaway. Skip the the bridge giveaway, and we will pick the winner from that and send you that off. So that's pretty exciting. Now, before we end, I just want to say real quick, uh, there are two movies that came out we did not get a chance, or not even movies, a movie and a TV show we did not get to watch, but we do recommend you check out. One is House of Cards Season 2. Of course, the Netflix show, everyone I know who's watched House of Cards Season 2 says, holy shit, it's even better than Season 1, and I previously reviewed Season 1 and talked about how great it is, this political show with Kevin Spacey. Did you see the thing? I think it's like uh, North Korea or something is now selling this as like like trailers from this as that show like showing this is exactly what politics are actually like in Washington D.C. So you can see how corrupt and evil Americans are. Well, it's fairly close. <laughs> it probably is, but still. And if you're gonna if you're gonna watch uh, House of Cards, do all uh, the U.S. version. Do also make sure you go back go back and uh, find the original British show. Yeah, uh, which is extremely accurate. I love. Extremely unpleasant British it. politicians. Loved the British version of this. And plus, the British version has one of the greatest endings of any show ever. Yeah. Like, you know, you think, like, 
the cliffhanger in this one was good, which I just thought the cliffhanger of the first season was okay. It's like, all right, the way it ends the first one, which was a, based on a book, so it doesn't feel as much like the end of a season. Uh, it's like, Wah! stand up off your couch and scream. <laughs> like, oh, holy shit! Uh, this is actually unlike the first season, which had no extras, so it was baffling why Netflix even put it out. You're like, you are Netflix. Why would anyone buy the home version if, except for getting extras? Well, this actually has a few extras on it. There's a politics for politics sake uh, with a look at um, – with the, the actors and David Fincher. They talk on the, the universal themes of the nature and power and revenge. Um, there's a direct address. Remembers the cast and crew talk about uh, the penchant of the main character for breaking the fourth wall wall and the similarities and differences between uh, the BBC adaptation and the new series, which are very different because the yeah. BBC version, it's pretty much constant that he's breaking the fourth wall here. Every It's just every once in a while. And then when it hap- happens, you're usually like, oh, yeah, I forgot that he does that. Uh, two houses for 11 minutes, which is the longest thing on here, which uh, looks into the show's genesis, history of the British version, David Fincher being interested in the new adaptation, yada, yada, a table read with the cast, uh, a, a look at uh, the the development and production of an episode called Line of Secession, a good amount of extra features on yeah. there. So they try and make it worth your while for getting, you know, something, you know, paying money for something you're probably already paying $8 a month for anyway that you're getting more or less for free. But still recommended. The other thing here is the Grand Budapest Hotel that no matter how much I begged, pleaded, and cajoled, no one was willing to send me a copy of. What? Yeah, I didn't. You didn't get a copy of it, did you? No. See? Yeah. I'm just saying. And I Which asked. Which is weird, because Wes Anderson... UT graduate. Yeah, and plus they usually send out the Wes Anderson films to everybody. Yeah. Could not figure out why. Like, no press member I knew got a copy of this. But, of Wait. course, this was his film that came out uh, this year that is uh, you know, widely loved by Wes Anderson films and uh, fans and by a lot of non-Wes Anderson fans, surprisingly, who really liked this one. For me, I thought this was actually a lesser Wes Anderson film. But... People tend to like one sort of Anderson film or the other. I like the ones that have a little bit more heart and a little bit more character depth. Some people like the ones that are more just kind of crazy and like... Yeah, you do feel he really one day wants to make a screwball comedy. This How is, close to that is this? This is as close to a screwball comedy as... Yeah, he pretty much is. It's yeah. his screwball comedy. And that being said, nobody ever really feels real. Yeah. You know, uh, like I, I much preferred Moonrise Kingdom myself because it actually had a heart to it. This just feels like you're watching somebody incredibly talented kind of going through the motions. Um, very well-made film, but that just seems to not quite have a soul. A lot of people disagree with me on that, and fair enough. You know, it's still a really good movie. It's just not one of my favorite Wes Andersons. But it's available on Blu-ray now, so you can get that as well. That ties it up for this uh, this week's Digital Noise. Richard, I'm sorry. We don't have more to talk about. Aww. I know. You were so hoping we could just be here all day. All the day. As it is, this is one of the longest episodes we've ever had. Two well, hours and seven minutes. Yeah, there was a huge this was a busy week. Well, we're actually trying to get a little bit ahead of schedule now because... Uh, Comic-Con is coming up, and I know I'll be gone for that. And it's like, we can't really do reviews three or four weeks after stuff came out. No. So it's like, we're going to try and get ahead of the game a little bit here. I'm trying my best. Ahead. That's not what we do. Yeah, not usually. No. Don't worry, we'll be lazy again as soon as Comic-Con's over. Hey! <laughs> anyway, uh, for Digital Noise, I'm Chris. I'm Richard. And no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we see them all. Penis! cock. <laughs>